Knockback is brought to you by thousands of supporters on Patreon at patreon.com slash Stand. If you want to show your support for Knockback, as well as CLS's PlayStation podcast Sacred Symbols, the eclectic interview series Fireside Chats, and the YouTube gaming series SideQuest, please consider going to Patreon and pledging for a monthly amount that makes the most sense for you. Your Patreon support doesn't only ensure that CLS continues to produce the content you love, like Knockback, but you can get cool perks, too, depending on your level of support. You can get early access to each episode of Fireside Chats, Sacred Symbols, and Knockback, totally ad-free. You can vote for show topics and provide feedback to be read on air. You can listen to exclusive podcasts only available to patrons, and much more. Your support is essential if Colin's Last Stand is to continue well into the future, so please consider showing some love. Again, that's patreon.com slash Stand. Thank you for your kindness, generosity, and support. Without you, CLS wouldn't exist. But enough of that. On to the show. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Knockback. My name is Colin Moriarty. I'm joined as always by my brother, Raccoon City PD's finest, Dagan Moriarty. <laughs> we do it. What is that from? You knew I was going to start with that. Do you remember, apparently, who's the producer, RE? We're going to give it away right now. The RE2 remake. Let me see. Pronounce, f- forgive me for mispronouncing this. Yeah, right. please. Yoshiaki Hirobayashi. Oh, okay. The producer. Very nice. He, that reveal, that famous reveal mm-hmm. that they did, I guess Capcom's YouTube channel. Oh, at the end of the trailer. With his t-shirt. Yeah, yeah, The We Do It t-shirt. Yeah, We Do It. <laughs> <laughs> love it. Why is English still per- so persistent? I don't know, but I love it. I love it too, I hope but- it never it, goes away. It has to be somewhat cognizant at this point, right? Yeah, in other words, it's a good I understand in the 90s, let's say like we go back to the 80s and 90s and you see these weird English t-shirts and signs and whatnot. Yeah. There's not really a lot of communication between Japan and the West in terms of, you know, electronic communication. I don't think a lot of people were going there. Right. You know, so I understand how that kind of stuff happens. But sure. in the age of the Internet, when in- there, I think there's a, literally a website called English.com, which I think is all dedicated to this stuff. And I've been to Japan twice and it's all over the place. Yeah, so I wonder if it's kind of intentional. At this point. Right. Like if someone's being cute. Right. Exactly. It's because like a thing. It, it's not like I don't know how common it is to speak English in, in Japan, but uh, the, the people that I did meet that spoke English could speak it better than these T-shirts indicate. So even there are even people amongst them. Yeah. I could say, like, listen, guys, this weird T-shirt that, that you're wearing. That is a very interesting point. Now, I think young people in Japan, if I'm, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, mm-hmm. I think English language is a big thing there. You know, going back to we've talked about it on the podcast before, Kyle, like cram schools and where kids go to school after school, basically night school just to learn English, you know, through curriculum based type stuff. So, yeah. So I don't that is a really great point. You know, I don't see it. I never saw English as an offensive thing. Obviously, I'm a complete Japanophile and I love Japanese culture and I love everything Japan. But I never saw it as an offensive thing. I see it as a very cute thing. Oh, well, what do you mean? I think by it's f- adorable. What, what do you mean offensive towards them? I, or yeah, towards I don't us? see it as making fun. Oh, no, no, I don't really either. I mean, because the, the word English for people that don't know is kind of making fun of Japanese, the language, because there is no L sound in native Japanese. Exactly. So L's come off as R's. As I R. mean, this is why PlayStation is, and I'm not trying to be, I'm not trying to be like facetious. That's no. the way it's That's the way said. they say it. You know, uh, so... That's where the term English comes in. Exactly. And basically that you guys can go look it up because there's so much funny stuff. Actually, Damon Hatfield at IGN is a connoisseur of English. And so you can he always tweets stuff out, but you can go look it up. It's so funny. A lot of the stuff because it's just a lot of nonsense. Yeah. Just abject nonsense. <laughs> just English words smashed together. And so it's very funny. It's pure East meets West. Oh, it is personified. It is just like Ming Tsai. He was the true East meets West. Oh, 
Remember, remember Ming Tsai? Of course. I think Connecticut's own Ming Tsai, if I recall. I thought Massachusetts. Maybe Massachusetts. That's right. Yeah, because he had a restaurant, I think, called Blue Ginger in yeah. Boston. Dude, you're blowing my mind right now. I forgot all about Ming Tsai. I now, guys, him. if you guys don't, this is a really deep cut. There's like literally two people out there. I know what we're talking about. He had a cooking show on on public television. Yeah, here. I don't know if it was everywhere. I don't. That's a good It question. might have ended up everywhere. I did see it in Connecticut, New York. He was on New York. Was it a... No, no. He, yeah, Blue Blue Ginger was his restaurant. What was his show called? Eats Meets West. That's oh, that's what, right. It was. That's East why. West. That's why I came up. Yeah. He brilliant, brilliant. Now yeah, was he, he he was involved in politics in Massachusetts as well. Is that right? I don't know. I, that's too. That's that too deep of a cut up. for me. For I could be making that up. But he was a great television celebrity chef. Back very in, charismatic, back in handsome. Yeah. Oh, very handsome. Hell of a cook. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I and I it. believe a great tennis player. I don't know how I know that. How maybe he, he plays tennis in the intro or something. Oh, okay. Maybe that's what it is. Or maybe you're just making an assumption that he's a good tennis player because he's Chinese. And he was on Iron Chef. <laughs> he was a competitor on Iron Chef, Kyle. Did you know you that? You missed my joke. No, no. <laughs> what I, was the joke? Re- retell the joke. I said that you you, you just assumed he was a good tennis player because he was Chinese. <laughs> oh, my God. Also excellent, the violin and the piano. <laughs> Great cello player. He was always at Nisma. That's a really, Nisma's a really deep cut. I don't know. I don't understand Nisma's that. New York State something. It's the music association. Oh, when you my would play, goodness. And when you play, you'd have to go to Nisma finals. And This like, is getting crazy. Yeah, I know. What, what are we even talking about? I don't know. I have any idea. Dagan, this is CLS Knockback for the Uninitiated. Our podcast is not about <laughs> eight various ancient languages <laughs> and how they, how they pretend to be used in their native countries. Rather, it's our nostalgia and retro podcast that we put up every week. Now, typically, Dagan... Our podcasts go up. We don't really say anything about the time they're going up. I do want to apologize to our early, our patrons. Remember, you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash Collins Last Stand, where you can get early ad-free access to our show and the ability to submit questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, and ideas. This show is going up a little late on Thursday. Our shows always go up on Thursday. Mm, it's Thursday. I forgot about that. But Dustin's going to be record uh, because of the travel. I'm with Dagan now in person. The last three episodes we recorded remotely. We were going to do this one remotely, but I had some other more imminent shit I needed to take we care of before I left. procrastinated. We didn't, really, we didn't really procrastinate as much as, listen, dude, I, there's always so much to do okay. that I'm going to keep pushing the thing that needs to be done last <laughs> to last. You know, like I got to get done, you know, finished. But anyway, I just wanted to apologize to the audience that this is a few hours late. I did warn you that this was going to happen, but obviously we never miss a week with knockback. We never will unless one of us die. Good things come to those who wait. That's, That's what true. I say. That's true. I don't apologize. Well, Dana, that's nothing to apologize about. <laughs> Dagan, today's episode is about Resident Evil 2, and I think that this is going to be a fun one for us to do because I could be wrong, but I don't know that we've done an episode of the show so close to the release of something. Yes. Now, we're going to talk about the 1998 original. Of course. But indeed, 21 years later, earlier this year in 2019, when we're recording this, we're recording this in the summer of 2019, Resident Evil 2 remake came out and it's considered one of the great games of the year. And that was actually kind of the inspiration to do this because I just want to experiment a little bit. Are we are we as fun to listen to when we're talking about contemporary things? Well, you know, what? it's funny. Yeah. Very not retro. Decidedly not retro. It came out about, what, six months ago. Yep. So but tied to nostalgia because it's based on the game from the 90s. Of course. So we we got a little wiggle room in there, I think. Indeed, we do. A little wiggy wiggy room. Now, Dig, Resident Evil 2 is a game. You know, I was thinking really deep about this. I don't remember when I played it. I remember playing the original Resident Evil in New Hampshire. When I lived in New Hampshire, my friend Steven got it. Okay. And he had like the fat box Resident Evil. And we played it and it was scary. And it was I'd never seen anything like that game. And I wasn't really a big horror guy back in the day either. This was like seventh grade or eighth grade. 
That was the same day, by the way, when I was introduced to PlayStation Magazine. Oh. And got a PSM subscription, of which I have the first, what, 300 episodes or issues of that or so, whatever the fuck it is. With RE1. With RE, well, yeah. The, uh, so Final Fantasy VII was on the first cover of PSM, mm. but it was that same birthday that celebration cover. where I was also introduced to Resident Evil. Very cool. But Resident Evil 2, you know, I don't know when I played it. I want to say that it was with my friend Bryce in high school, who was a big fan of horror and horror games. And what we used to do, and I think I've talked about this in the past, is we would go rent games and often he would play and I would sit on his laptop. And this was in the late 90s in his room, you know, hooked into a phone line. And we'd, I'd read game facts while he was playing Silent Hill or he was playing whatever it was. And then we would switch up or whatever. So I really believe that my first experience with Resident Evil 2 was with Bryce when I was in high school. But I'm not positive. That's I couldn't cool. I couldn't think back, but I was curious. Do you remember I do. your first exposure to this game? I definitely do. With RE2, you're talking about? Yes. Yeah. So I was. No, big... I'm talking about fucking Tomba. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have a whole Tomba episode <laughs> planned. I think I just did an illustration, a commission for somebody of the of Tomba, like a couple of months ago. That's funny that you bring that up. But so picture it, Carl. It'll, 1998. Sicily. Philly. Philly. 1998. Nerd house. I lived in what was it 16th and Bainbridge we lived in nerd house which was me and three good friends of mine we were dubbed the skate nerds by the skate community of Philadelphia because we were nerdy and we skated and I lived on that do you remember that apartment I lived on the top floor I had the entire top floor you know there were row homes I had the entire top floor to myself that was my bedroom it was three three floors right it was four floors four floors yeah, yeah I do remember that I do remember that place so awesome yeah oh it was such a nice and house. you had a backyard too I mean it, we had a little backyard yeah. a little patio outside I think I got in. drunk out there oh I'm sure and on the roof <laughs> wait, <laughs> wait was, was that the same yeah you <laughs> could go out the second floor to a little roof where my friend Rick, who's come up in the podcast before, he grew like he grew his marijuana plants out there. <laughs> so there was like a roof on the second floor. And then if you go, you went up one more flight. That was my bedroom, which was the top floor, uh, the entire top floor. And I had my PlayStation up there and I don't think I had any lights. Like there were no light fixtures. So any light you had had to be, was like a lamp that you plugged into the wall. So it was very dark. I had like one, you know, I was a college student. I had like one lamp. It was super dark. So at night, and it wasn't in a very well lit neighborhood. It was pretty much the ghetto, you know. And I would play my PlayStation up there at night. And I played Resident. I remember already Resident Evil 2 is exciting for me because I, you know, I was already older and I was a big Capcom fan, huge Capcom fan between Mega Man and of course Street Fighter and Darkstalkers was a huge thing in the mid to late 90s. That we loved and Resident Evil 1. So when Resident Evil 2 came out, we were super excited. Just super. I was a super Capcom fanboy. I still am. So I remember playing the game with a friend, of, a couple of friends of mine. I had a friend. I forgot her name. I worked with her at a restaurant. Cindy, I think her name was. And we used to play that at night sometimes, like go up there and just play, turn the lights out, super scary. And also, I should preface this by saying, especially also with the Resident Evil 2 remake, I am not, we've talked about this on the podcast, I'm not a big horror fan at all. I don't like horror films. I mean, I enjoy them, but they really get in my head. They scare the hell out of me. I sleep with the lights on for weeks after. Talk about that film Hereditary that came out one or two years ago. Dude, that, that movie scared the shit out of me to the point where I, I wasn't sleeping at night for like weeks. So that's my that's sort of my relationship with horror. So but the Resident Evil games, for some reason, I've always loved them. I just I really dug Resident Evil 2. It was one of those games during that time being busy in art school that I played all the way through. Uh, really embraced it, really spent time with it. I mean, besides really of that era, 
besides maybe like Final Fantasy VII and Wild Arms and a couple other games that we tend to discuss often on the podcast, that was one of the games I really spent a lot of time with during that busy time in my life. And I loved it. So that's where Resident Evil 2 started with me. And I have very, very vivid memories of playing it because, you know, playing in that dark bedroom at night with friends, super scared. You know, and that it's so funny looking back how scary that that game seemed. I know, and looking back at the footage, it's so rudimentary oh, and man. ugly. It's Even so by PS One standards, I actually don't think the game looks very good. No. To be fair, it's a mid gen PS One game. For, for people that don't really know, though, PS One's era was pretty truncated compared to what we're used to today. Where PS Four has been on the market as a dominant as the dominant Sony console for longer than PS One was on the market. That's interesting to think about. And so. There were PS1 games coming out 2002, 2003, 2004, but that was well into the PS2 era and the GameCube and Xbox era. Sure. So it's a little unfair to say that it's ugly because I don't know that developers had as much time and access to PS1 as they probably could have in order to extract its power before they moved on the PS2. But it really doesn't look very good because I, I, I think that there are games. I actually think Parasite Eve looks much better than Resident Evil 2 oh, it does. and certain other games. So it really is funny how that kind of came along as we went. But it is in, in watching footage of it and trying to really claim that time where I played it for the first time and I was exposed to it for the first time. It did bring something back for me because it has all of those little trappings that made horror horror in the 90s. And even into like the PS2 era, tank controls, fixed camera angles, yeah. pre-rendered backgrounds, all those kinds of things that are fucking obnoxious. <laughs> but, at the, but at the time, it really made a lot of sense and it hyped it. It, it, it edged up the horror Resident Evil 2 wasn't even playable with dual analog sticks until later. So we were playing it with a D-pad. Right. Which is really hard for people to imagine. So imagine playing a game, a third-person game, in which you cannot control the camera. Now, this was a thing that we dealt with all the time back in the day, but it's totally antithetical to the way we play games oh, today. Oh, it's evolved so much And the then. beautiful thing is that Resident Evil 2 Remake, which is an extraordinarily good game, is a modern game. It's, it, it's not like remake on GameCube where it was kind of like a half step where it still kind of felt tanky and all that kind of stuff. This game is a third person horror action shooter. Yep. And so I really want to frame our conversation around from game, a gameplay perspective around remake too, but we have to obviously talk about the original and the source material because sure. of who worked on it. And also I think Dagan, one of the interesting things about Resident Evil two is the very public way in which Capcom showed the game off for the first time and then had to walk it back when they delayed it and basically made it again. So it's one of the early examples of someone or not someone, but a publisher, an entity saying this game's not up to snuff and where we need more time to yeah. finish it. So there, there's a lot of interesting stuff with Resident Evil 2 that I think is going to be worth talking about for our audience. And why I wanted to start with Resident Evil 2 as opposed to just the original Resident Evil, which we'll obviously go back to as well, because that game, I think, is more important. But to catch everyone update, Resident Evil 2, which is called Biohazard 2, of Biohazard. course, Hazard in Japan. For people that don't know, for the two of you out there that don't know, Biohazard is Resident Evil in Japan. And here, over here, it's Resident Evil. That was because I assume of some sort of trademark issue. There's a famous American metal band called Biohazard, yes. which I assume probably was the reason why they couldn't call it I think Biohazard. that was one of the main reasons. But the game came out January 21st, 1998. The remake came out January 25th, 2019, almost 21 years I to the know. date from it. Now, it came to PC in 1999, N64 and Dreamcast in 99, and then GameCube in 2003. For people that don't remember, Resident Evil 2 and I think Nemesis came out on GameCube as is after Remake. So Capcom was basically like, oh, look how popular Remake is. Let's just get these other games out. They didn't actually remake them, although they were talking about it at the time. So 
that's like kind of the way you can play the original still to this day. And I think you can get the PS1 Classic on PS3 and Vita right now as well. Of course, there's no way to play those on PS4 yet. And I probably there probably won't be. The game stars, and I think one of the keys of the game is it stars two different protagonists. It stars Leon Kennedy, who is most famous from Resident Evil 4. This is the first time you really see him. And Claire Redfield, who really became more famous from Code Veronica, which came later. And the game takes place about two months after the original Resident Evil, which takes place in the fall of 1996. So there's a lot of continuity there. And Dagan, what's really important, I think, from a development standpoint, is the producer and the director of the, of the game, there right? And Dagan and I were talking last night at dinner where I was like, I don't know that I can think, maybe outside of Nintendo, where there's certainly a lot of combinations of really talented people. But I can't think of a game that has a producer-director combination this powerful. Yeah, iconic. In terms of modernity. So back in the day, these names didn't mean goddamn thing to anyone. But so the game was directed by Hideki Kamiya. You guys know that name because he later went on to found Platinum Games. But he directed Devil May Cry. He directed Resident Evil Zero. He directed Beautiful Joe. He directed Okami. He directed Bayonetta. A couple of things. Yeah, just a couple of things. A couple of insane. And he was the producer of the original Resident Evil. And then Shinji Mikami became the producer. He founded Tango Gameworks more recently. Tango Gameworks, of course, is owned by Bethesda. They're a Bethesda first party team. They're located in Japan. They're responsible for the Evil Within and that Tokyo Ghostwire game that's going to be coming out in the next year or two. And he directed Resident Evil 1. He directed and produced Dino Crisis. He directed Resident Evil 4. <laughs> so these are guys that are... Uh, some some pedigree. Pretty serious dudes. And obviously bit. later went on to create The Evil Within, which is considered maybe before... Res- you know, it's funny, Dave. Between Dead Space in 2008, 2009 yeah. and Resident Evil 7 yep. in 2016, the best survival horror game I think most people would consider either Outlast or The Evil Within. So Mikami is still... A huge name, obviously. And so those are the two guys that were really responsible at the end of the day, along with a team of about 50 people or so, which is a massive team for the late 90s that to create a, a video game for, for then. That's I, I actually think that might even be twice as big as the team that made Final Fantasy seven. Wow. So, you know, teams back in the day for people that don't know teams that worked on NES games, maybe four, maybe six. I think yeah. game, I think a big game like Mario three had like 12 people working on it. That they would make enormous. it in like a year. You know, and then in the SNES and Genesis era, you might bump up to 20, yeah. 25. It might take you 18 months to make a game. And then by the time you got to the disc era and the N64 era, of course, still cartridges, team started to bloat, marketing budget started to bloat, dev budget started to bloat, team started to get bigger, and you're able to kind of achieve a game that re- like Resident Evil 2 dig that I think you would imagine, and I think you would agree that even though we're making fun of the way it looks now, that was a technical behemoth of a game back in oh, back 1998. Then. Absolutely. Absolutely. So the interesting thing that I mentioned earlier, Dig, as we kind of set the stage, is that in, at Tokyo Game Show in 1996, right after Resident Evil came out, they showed a clip of Resident Evil 2 to get everyone excited. And the assumption was that Resident Evil 2 was going to come out quickly. Remember that there are six Mega Man games from Capcom just a few years earlier in six years. These guys put out games quickly. Street Fighter was iterated on and Street Fighter 2 especially iterated on constantly, oh like every six months. No, every, every, yeah. So every day. And even with Dark Darkstalkers and even with like they, they had some new stuff like rival schools and stuff. But ultimately, they were starting to trying to iterate. And the interesting thing about Resident Evil 2 from that perspective is that they intended at least the dev team intended to end the series with Resident Evil 2. 
Now, the clip that was shown ended up being from a game that is now internally referred to as Resident Evil 1.5. Now, I didn't know this when until I was researching. You can actually play Resident Evil 1.5. It leaked a few years ago. And there's some stuff from um, from Kamiya and, and Mikami about talking about the game and how it's not worth playing and it's bad. And it somehow found its way out into the wild. Yeah, like someone it, from so Capcom. It's available now? Yeah, so apparently you can go play it on a PS1 wow, emulator if you want. Know, I didn't know that. And I'm not, you know, as you know, Dagan and I are not anti-emulator except for modern consoles. So you're not going to find any judgments from me if you go get a PS1 emulator and play no, it. No, play it how you need to. Yeah, I don't really care. Capcom has enough money. <laughs> The other important thing to note here is that Noburo Sergimura wrote the game. Now, he died in 2005, but he also wrote Animusha and Dino Crisis. But he was really brought in to try to salvage the game because the game was fucked up. And if you read about the development of Resident Evil 2, specifically through the lens of the 1.5 iteration, it was apparently just not very good. And what's interesting about that is that Mikami kind of found Kamiya. Kamiya was a no one. And put him in charge of the game, and he kind of dropped the ball. And the the brilliant butterfly effect at that moment, the inflection point at that moment, Dagan, because most companies would have gone and been like, all right, well, this guy's clearly gone, and we're going to restart the game and get someone else in that chair. And they didn't. And I don't know if you read anything. I actually wrote this down. Where did I write it down? There's a great Polygon article. And I hate Polygon. I think the, the website mostly sucks. <laughs> like, but there's but there's a but to be fair, right? There's an article on Polygon not written by anyone that actually works at Polygon, which is probably why it's good. It's called How Resident Evil 2 Fell Apart. And it's by Alex Aniel. And he apparently is like a historian that's really or a, a, I don't want to say an historian because I would recommend that he had a degree. But he's a history guy with Resident Evil and is writing a book about it. And a lot of information in there is is, is super fascinating. And one of the things that they talk about in there is that. There were people on the team of Resident Evil 1.5 that basically went to Mikami and were like, Kamiya's got to go. Wow. And basically, Mikami stood by Kamiya and basically every person that challenged him was like, well, do you want to direct the game? And no one wanted it. So they stuck with Kamiya. And thank God they did, because without that, Kamiya would have been probably, if not ostracized from Capcom, probably worked at some other studio and not as big, been big as big of a name. He co-founded Platinum Games. Platinum Games, obviously... (laughs) Pretty big name out of Japan. One of the great independent studios right now over there. They're in bed with Nintendo to an almost second party degree, but they still make games for everybody. Yeah, and have a great reputation. They have an excellent, a sterling reputation from the very beginning with Mad World. So to me, I look at that particular piece of information that I didn't know as such a fascinating inflection point in the trajectory of the franchise, of course, but also the trajectory of Kamiya as a creator, because he's the creative director and really one of the heads of Platinum Games now. And it's because they stuck with him which I think is so interesting. So the game was kind of redesigned. Capcom gave uh, their internal team another year to make the game. They didn't want to scrap everything from 1.5, so they took some of the things forward. But if you read about the differences between the game, you'll realize that there are basically mirrors of everything that they tried to do or a lot of what they tried to do in 1.5 into. There are multiple playable characters, but they become characters that have some sort of connection to the first game. There was no initial connection to the first game in the script of the second game. They wanted them to stand apart. People that played 1.5 were like, that makes no sense. Why would you want to do that? So they set it in the same universe with the same kind of virus, Raccoon City, all that kind of stuff. And them kind of going to the police station in Raccoon City and everything and all hell breaks loose from that point. But if you look at a lot of the early kind of write ups and some of the footage, you'll see a shadow of Claire. You'll see a shadow of Leon. You'll see a shadow of Mr. X and all these kinds of different things that are in the game. And Mr. X, of course, being probably my favorite part of the game. Oh, my God. So good. So. 
take, I mean, talk to me a little bit about from whatever, even if you want to talk about the first one or the second one, I mean, talk to me a little bit about why this game is so striking to you from not only from a horror perspective, from a gameplay perspective and from a, uh, an, an experiential perspective, because what I think is so cool about it are the two playable characters and the different sequences. And they really simplified it in Resident Evil 2 Remake, where you don't have to play the game so many times to see everything like you did yeah. in the original. Right. But you have to play the game multiple times to see everything and and have two playable characters with their own adventures that cross over but don't. And you just have two totally different scenarios, basically, at some point where right. you even meet different characters and play as different characters in their scenario. So talk to me a little bit about what makes Resident Evil 2 tick from that perspective. It's so I was so delighted with the remake, because, you know, we talk about this. I don't have a lot of time usually just in my life to play contemporary games, even though more and more so I have been. And Resident Evil 2 remake, although I was, you know, just paying attention to video, modern video games and contemporary gaming in general, I knew that it was coming. I knew that there was a lot of fanfare and a lot of hype surrounding its release, but I wasn't really paying attention to it six or seven months ago when it came out in January. And just to go back and now researching as we were getting ready to do the episode and playing the game, just to realize how, first of all, how critically, how well received it was critically almost across the board, unanimously. Like it's a lot of people's favorite game of, not just of the year so far, but of of as of late of the last few years and how well it did. I think it sold like 3 million copies in three days or something like that. And so that was really cool to learn all of that and learning all that and researching before I even played it, before I even downloaded it on the PS4 and played it was really cool because it created a lot of hype. And I was still saying to myself how good I was staying away from spoilers. I wasn't watching a lot of gameplay footage, but I was like, how good can this game possibly be? It's a remake of Resident Evil 2. That was a legendary game, but, you know, it's simply a remake. We're kind of in this remake era now, so you kind of... It's easy to treat it with a little skepticism when you hear the word remake. It's like, uh, you know, like there's a lot of hype, for instance, around Final Fantasy VII remake. Which look, by the way, just to throw in, it looks fucking awesome. Oh, it looks amazing. I was such a, I was so hard on that for that game, oh, like just God. making fun of it constantly. Yeah, because and then that's, they actually, what, I, that's they, what you would think. And they showed it and I'm like, wowzers. Because even, we'll do another episode about Final Fantasy VII, I'm sure. Oh, absolutely, but, of course. But just as a, a quick aside, yeah. with that game, even when they started showing the the gameplay for the first time at E3 and it, it looked like Devil May Cry basically. And I was like, oh God. But then they showed the systems and how you have to basically earn the right to use magic and earn your earn the right to like get into the menus and freeze time and stuff like that. I'm like, oh, this is fucking great. Yeah, it's so cool. So anyway, I'm sorry. It's to so just, thoughtful. Yeah, no, it well, you know what? Well, maybe it seems like now and I don't want to jump the gun, but it seems like now we're entering the era of the thoughtful remake. And that's cool. You know, and we'll get into what Capcom's now planning. We'll maybe get into that towards the end of the show. But so Resident Evil 2 Remake was really delightful for me for a lot of reasons. First of all, because I was so invested in the original RE2 back in the day in the 90s, there's a lot of loving nods to the original game in this game. But this game is a complete reimagining, you know, not only, you know, changing now the fixed camera and the tank controls and all of that stuff, but there's a lot of reasons why I love this game. Graphically, it's gorgeous to look at. Graphically, it's gorgeous to look at on its own, not even how much it's evolved from the original, which of course it has. When you compare them side by side, we were watching comparison footage earlier. It's night and day, you know, and obviously that, that kind of graphical evolution is going to take place over this much time, over a couple of decades. But what really is the most striking about this, so visually, it's, I love the nods to the original. I love how, you know, I know how loving it is. I really, really enjoy how loving it is to the original. And I love 
the way the game looks. But the game is so smooth and fluid in its controls and also very satisfying. The combat is satisfying. The var- There's a lot to do in the game. There's, you know, various puzzle elements, exploration. You know, we'll get into Mr. X. You know, combat with zombies and creatures and evading and, you know, inventory and everything like that. It's It took what made Resident Evil so fun and just took all those components really to the next level, smoothed everything out. There's really no, for me, there's really no annoying aspects to the gameplay. It's very, very easy to play and very, very satisfying. It's very smooth. It's very fluid. Every touch to the controls, to the gameplay is thought out and very cleverly designed. And you could see, it's one of those things, we were talking about this yesterday with movies, like when, or you hear about a movie or a new series on Netflix or something, or even a new TV series. You know, you hear about it and you say, there's a lot of hype surrounding something. And you almost, that sort of, that sort of skepticism kicked in, kicks in of like, how good can this possibly be? So I had that going into this game, but it's that good. This game is that good. It's really, really well done. I was really shocked because I was saying it's one of the first games I've actually purchased digitally on the PS4, funnily enough. That's how often I get to play contemporary games. But I was shocked. I was actually shocked initially that it was 60 bucks. And then I remembered, well, this is a, you know, this is a, this isn't a B class game. This is a, this is a, this is a real game. And people are saying a lot of great things about it. So just engage with it. And I enjoyed, I absolutely enjoyed the hell out of it. I I just really, really loved every second of this game. It's very AAA. Like I, I, and we're talking about the remake, although the original in 1998 was very AAA for the time too. Yeah. But it's funny that people didn't really know what to expect. And I don't blame them because you just don't know what you're going to get from Resident Evil in terms of production value, in terms of quality. I think Resident Evil 5 and Resident Evil 6 are really bad games. And (laughs) Uh, so it's and then you have the revelation side series, which is kind of a little more budget. And you have like these, you know, light gun shooters. And so in other words, you don't know what you're going to get. So I, I the skepticism about Resident Evil 2 or just the lack of excitement leading up to it, I thought made a lot of sense from someone who's been in the industry for a long time. Because I'm like, well, why would you why would you believe it? But what we didn't yeah. really realize at the time was. In kind of looking back at the time in which it was released a few months since then and a few months going back or even a year going back is that Capcom is experiencing like a, a revol- like a revolution. They really are. And a resurgence with the quality, with the mo- amount of money they're making and, the, and their ability to kind of explore these different tangents where they can make good money. And they, they spent the time necessary to make something really impressive. And in, in a year and in, in an industry where there's just a lot of AAA stuff coming out all the time. And a lot of same, you know, same kind of stuff, but stuff that's good shooters and third person shooters and action games and open world RPGs and stuff. It stands out and it, that Resident Evil 2 is some people's game of the year. That's that's a big deal. So it's worth noting that as well, just from an historical perspective. Absolutely. I think the other thing that makes Resident Evil 2 remake so interesting is is same is the same spirit that was part of Resident Evil 2, the original Resident Evil 2's development cycle, which was that about half the team never worked on Resident Evil and half the team worked on the original Resident Evil back in the day. And so Given that Mikami and Kamiya are not even accessible anymore to them because they both are doing their own things and have been for a long time and because of the fact that many people have moved on and, and you know, Capcom's got a whole new crop of people over the last 21 years. I think that by having so only a few people that worked on the original game and then having lost some of those important touchstones, you got just different perspectives about what this should be. Yeah. And so they made design choices and design changes in the game, including, like I said, really making the sequences between Leon and Claire make a little bit more sense and a little bit more have a little more coherence between them. 
That was a smart choice. And a lot of those choices can only come from people that don't look at the original game as being sacred. That's the only way you can remake a game effectively. And I think that with Square Enix and Final Fantasy VII Remake, I might have just been really wrong about it because I was like, why do you need to do this? And you yeah. could have you could have said the same thing about Resident Evil 2. Well, why do you need to do this? But I think with Resident Evil 2, the whys are a little more obvious. The fixed camera angles, the tank controls, all of that makes it a little more obvious. It's not as playable as Final Fantasy VII is today and the original Final Fantasy VII. And I would really highly recommend to people if they hadn't played either of them there. I don't know that there's really, again, much of a reason to go back and play Resident Evil 2 on PS1. You can. Yeah. You can buy it. It'll give you a little bit. If you really play the game and immerse yourself in the original, it will give you that much more appreciation because you'll see all the little nods, all the, but it's not necessary. You know, you'll gain a little more mileage out of the, out of the remake if you go back to the original. But then again, if you weren't, if it's not a nostalgic thing, then, and we'll talk about different things that play into different things that they carry over, you know, even little touches. But even if it's not a nostalgic thing, is it really necessary if you play RE2 and then two days later play the remake? Is it really going to give you an appreciation? You know what I mean? If you're not, I was invested in RE2, the original RE2 as a young, as a young guy. So this is a very this, this is a nostalgic trip for me, and that's part of the enjoyment is seeing those little nods, but absolutely not necessary. This is a complete reimagining. I mean, this is a this this game is its own game. In fact, this game could be its own game if they weren't you know recalling characters and situations and Raccoon City and Umbrella and all that kind of stuff. You know, this could be its own thing. That's how different it is. It is. It starts differently. You know, and again, I, I like how it's not unrecognizable. Right? They they. It, they're getting into the city together. They're running away from zombies, holding themselves up in the police department. All that kind of stuff happens in both versions of the game. It's just a matter of how you get there. And I actually really like the intro sequence in the remake a lot. Oh, it's so good. The truck driver eating the cheeseburger, listening to Coast to Coast or what was for people that don't know. I think it's AM Coast to Coast, whatever it's called, which is the alien and like supernatural show that's on in the middle of the night or was really popular in like the 80s and 90s. Yeah, AM Coast to Coast, I think it was called. And it was all about conspiracy theories and all that kind of stuff. So he's listening to something like that. Yeah. And that's pretty cool. So any 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 crashes into one of the zombies. And then I was making fun of it in a let's play that I the, it's a little unimmersive, but it's also a little it's very much like a horror movie. It's got, got a lot of kitsch and stuff. But with Leon and Claire both going to the convenience store and just not realizing that there's like a cop car abandoned in the front of it. Like Leon literally <laughs> drives up his Jeep to the to the and starts filling it with gas. There's like a bloodied cop car like three feet away from him and like blood footsteps and like broken glass, everything. And he like doesn't notice it. It's very funny. In all fairness, he is a rookie cop. He is a rookie cop and a bit Not of a moron, apparently, as well. <laughs> and then when he like and when he peels out of there, he doesn't like hit any of them with their car with his car, which annoys me, too. Like he actually like goes around them like intentionally. Yeah. Very, very Leon Kennedy. It's I a guess. little kitschy. It is, but it's fun. It's fun. It, it, it calls up old zombie movies, you know, which are ridiculous in their own right. Many of them, you know. So, yeah, man, it's it's a cool intro. I, I love the way it gets you right into it and gets you into the the main character of the game, which is the police department. Yes. And that's an important part of what I think makes Resident Evil and other similar horror games, whether it's Dead Space with the Ishimura, whether it's Outlast with the Insane Asylum, whatever it is, that's the character. That's the main character. Mm, that's like, that that's like that in horror, too. Good point. In, in horror movies. The mansion in the original Resident Evil is an essential protagonist oh, in the yeah. game, and so I really look at 
the police department. Obviously, it, the Resident Evil 2 t doesn't only take place in the police department. You go to, but it all takes place around it. You're in the garages and then the tunnels underneath, the sewers underneath. Yep. It's not until you really go to the laboratory and you go to the the orphanage, orphanage. and all that kind of stuff that you even leave. Yep. The, so that is the main character. And I got to say, in Resident Evil 2 Remake, it is such an amazing main character. It's just so good. Now, some of it makes no sense. No. Why don't the zombies go into the lobby? No one knows. <laughs> but at the same time, it I don't know if you remember this, Dave. We talked about this on another show, but it filled me with that feeling of comfortable exploration for some reason. Okay. I was talking to you about in Resident Evil 7 a while ago how I love the room. That game takes place in first person, which is unique for a Resident Evil game. And yeah. one of the things I really love about those kinds of games and similar games and Resident Evil 2 is finding the rooms where you can calm down and breathe and using your imagination, very similar to when a role playing game party goes to an inn or goes to a, a campfire. Great point. What are they doing? What are they talking about? Are they resting? Or So when, you know, Claire walks into the chief's office and it's quiet in Resident Evil 2 Remake. And there's the typewriter and the and the item box. And that's great. But there's also like a desk and a chair and a couch. And you imagine like, is Claire going to like lay down for a minute? Is she like going through her ammunition here and like and putting all of her stuff together? They don't show you those kinds of things. But I like the way the game expands your mind a little bit in that way and, and allows you to use your imagination, even though so much of it is so obvious, so overt and so kinetic in the game. You're, there's still angles in which you can use your imagination, which we had to do more back in the day then we don't have to do that anymore now. Yeah, you know? yeah. I like that it has that kind of authenticity for you. You know, but the, the settings are very authentic. I mean, the police station isn't, we'll get into this now. The police station, the Raccoon City police station is inherently creepy because, which I don't even know if I realized this before I played this game and did a lot of research. It's a converted art museum. Right. Never knew that before. Now, why, now let me ask you this question, Kyle. Maybe you know this, or maybe we have listeners that know this that are into the books or the, you know, the mythology behind Resident Evil, which I'm not really very well steeped in myself. But why is the police station built in an abandoned I have no or, or, you know, a converted art museum? I am not an expert on the workings of Resident Evil as a series like some people are out there. Right. So I, I couldn't tell you for sure, but Somebody I imagine... Knows. My imagination tells me that very similar to the mansion, right? Where you go to the mansion in the first game. I can't think. I can't remember the name of the mansion. I might have written it down here somewhere. Oh, I might be able to find a few because it has a name. It does. But anyway, you go to the mansion in the original Resident Evil. Okay. And it's like Bradford Mansion or something. And you go to it and it's its own character. But you, you it's necessary to, to solve the puzzles. In other words whatever arcane and weird shit is going on in the game could have only happened in that space. So my imagination tells me that, well, in a very convenient way, they needed to meld the police station with a museum because how else are you going to have all these puzzles to solve? Like, wh like what are you going to do in the police station other than unlock some lockers and that's a and very safes. great and practical point so i love that point so i think that that must be it in other words like well why are they there why is there this massive maiden statue right and why where do you get these tablets from well it's because they're they're just put shit in little rooms around the, like getting rid of things and that's why they're there so i it has to do with that i think and it's so smart because it's just and it it just gives you so much inherently creepy imagery to work with when you're designing a game you know mannequins and statues and old paintings and old furniture it's brilliant because you could have the best of both worlds you could have what you said you could have the offices and the locker rooms and the weapon storage and the cell you know the holding cells and all that kind of stuff plus you could have like the old library and the old you know all the antique furniture and you know the old pieces of artwork and statues and sculptures it's so it's so clever man it's 
I mean, you really, you, it's really so clever that you, it's very easy to take for granted. You got to really, really acknowledge how clever such a simple thing like that is. Cause it just makes that, it, it just makes the setting so creepy, especially when you add in the component of the lighting, which is, you know, it's just scary. It's just, it really is scary. It's funny. I, I like hearing your associations with the different settings. I, and I like hearing you say that the settings, especially the police station, are characters because they do have so much character and and so lovingly detailed in this game. I don't think I've ever seen a game with so much loving detail crafted into the backgrounds, things that you could very easily miss. You know, whether it's a, you know, a claw mark on the edge of the molding from the liquors or, you know, a nod to, you know, something written on a placard. Or, you know, everything, just anything, everything, a chair missing a little bit of stuffing out of it, you know, all the taxidermy in the police chief's office. I just, it was so, it's so immersive. It's so immersive. All the, and then, like you said, not just the police sta- station, but all the settings, the orphanage, the sewers are awesome in this game. We'll get into why those are so awesome, compa- especially compared to the original. And, you know, the umbrella labs, the nest, as it were, every everything. It's just so good. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the lighting too, because the, because of the nature of lighting technologies in games now, lights have re, you know, and this is not necessarily new. And PS One can even do this to a degree, but it can't be overestimated how taxing having light sources and and casting shadows and stuff on a on a real time game can be. And when you really consider also that the mansion is basically entirely open, there are no load screens in the game, which is really, really other than going from literally section to section. But if you play the original Resident Evil 2, the famous, you know, we make fun of Mass Effect now and, and games like that with the loading elevators and stuff like that. But the Resident Evil games had the load doors, the literal doors. You'd go oh through a door God. and it would load. Yeah. And I actually always loved that solution. I think that's a really elegant solution to load a game. Got to do it somewhere. You, yeah, you have to. Do, so you do it in the back end like that. But the game was really actually cordoned off. The game really, if you go back and look, even because I didn't play the original Resident Evil 2 recently. So I just went and looked at some video. The the game is cordoned off. The game is is claustrophobic, but not necessarily in a good way. Not claustrophobic like you are in the mansion or in, on Ishimura in Dead Space. Claustrophobic in that if you want to go through the door and then you're like, ah, oh, fuck, I got to go back. I forgot something. Now you have to load the game again and all that kind of stuff. So that's not present in Remake, which is what I think makes it so cool, too. It's this really fluid situation. And it also allows zombies to chase you through rooms, which is not even something that was possible in the old games. So... It changes the whole dynamic of the way the game not only appears because of the beautiful lighting and all of that kind of stuff. And obviously, like you said, the atten- the incredible attention to detail, but also because it's just you have your full run of it now and can play it properly or what we would look at as properly or at least in a modern way. So I like that as well. And I really think that, again, it just can't be understated how important of a character it is. It's, it's, it reminds me a lot of Castlevania, like the most important ca- character in Castlevania is the castle. It's not Dracula and it's definitely not the Belmonts. Right. They're just conduits by which you play this game. The castle is the character. And so, yeah, you know, and I'm so excited too, Dave, because you don't play a lot of modern games. So you noticing a lot of the the background imagery and all the little details. There's so many games that you're going to love just because I can't wait. The the most triple A games over the last uh, 10 years or so are all very similar in that regard, where it's really it's about you taking your time and seeing things or not. It's all there yeah. for you to see. Yeah, it's up to you. Right. Yeah, but I love that it's there. It's so different than classic gaming. I love retro gaming, but that that is one of the main components of modern gaming, of contemporary gaming that I really love. 
It's just how far things have come, not only graphically, but gameplay, graphic, especially graphically, but gameplay-wise, and also just the ideas, just the concepts, and seeing all these creative approaches to, to new things as video games grow. Video, you know, we forget video game. not to get off on a tangent, but video games, the art of video games, and it is an art, you know, the, the creation of video games is still so much in its, it's in its infancy. I mean, you even think of film, right? It's a hundred years old or something, you know? Yeah, like, more than that now. Now the game, it's still new, but even film is new. Games and gaming is so, it's the wild west, you know? It's still being invented and it's so cool to see how creative things are now. You know, there's so many, because as more and more games come out, you know, there's kind of a call to be creative and to stand out and to be unique and to create something new and to create something exciting. So I love that. And this game, yeah, it's just, it's, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. And I let you know, Kyle, I should say this before we get any further too. You were talking about Capcom before and sort of, you know, feeling like they're getting it right. Sort of like they're going through a renaissance. Absolutely. And I'm so proud of them, you know, again, being such a huge Capcom fanboy, always have been. But, you know, there's two things. One thing, I wonder how much they learned from their classic, from their old rival, Konami. From just watching Konami sort of drop the ball, whether whether Konami, there's still the jury still out on this, whether Konami was dropping the ball intentionally or unintentionally and just completely fucking up with gaming. And how much Capcom learned from looking at what they were doing, you know, quote unquote wrong, what, what, what Konami was doing wrong. But also just what I love about Capcom is not only, you know, the, the renaissance that they seem to be going through is a lot of it is about honoring their classic IP and knowing what you have. And when a gamer who is a fan of your product sees you acknowledging that, I think it means a lot. And not only knowing what you have, but knowing what your fans, what they, what they'll, what they loved and what they will love. And being just taking the time to be that thoughtful and being that invested in your own IP to know what you have, what's going to work and what's not going to work. And apparently it's setting off a whole thing with them and their board of directors and everything where they're, they are seriously considering, you know, sort of this expensive reboot channel, you know, sort of remaking their original IPs, but doing it in a very thoughtful way. You know, at, at, you know, and at great cost because this stuff costs a lot of money. Oh, to no, do. This game was very expensive to me. It costs a lot of money to make this stuff. Yeah, no, this is not a cheap, right. this is not a cheap game. And yeah, I would love to see something like that as well. I mean, I've often said that I would love to write their Mega Man game. I think that it's funny you talked about Konami and Capcom being rivals because I think a lot of younger people are so used to Konami being a, an afterthought in the industry that yeah. there were times Good there, there were plenty of times where Konami was definitely the superior company. And I would argue Konami has better IP, like overall. I think that Konami has really important IP that they can do a lot more with than Capcom. So it's funny that you're probably right. If I were Capcom, I'd be like, what the fuck are these guys doing? Although, to be fair, they're a much more diverse company. So to Dagan's point, this might have all... I don't want to say they intentionally release bad games, but I think they intentionally don't care. They diversified. Yeah, exactly. The, the money is not in video games for them. And Konami hasn't really been a force of great video game. Like when you play a good Konami game, it's a surprise. And that's sad when they released Castlevania Requiem last year, which was Symphony of the Night on PS4. And when they released the recent Castlevania collection and in the Contra collection and all that, it's good stuff. But, oh, I, yeah, I, but I, I wonder what they're doing with it. Like, are they gauging now? Like the interest? Should we or should we come back? Should we do? We're going to get another Metal Gear Solid. I hate to tell everyone Metal Gear Solid 6 is definitely going to happen. And, and Kojima is obviously not going to have anything to do with it. So we're going to see how that all goes. But 
where else do they go from there? I think it's really interesting that they're trying to like gauge and they can really take a similar road to right. to, uh, to Capcom. Imagine if they remade some of their classic games, remake, you know, they remade Metal Gear Solid, Silicon Knights did in 2003 on GameCube, but remake some, you know, remake Contra in a modern way, remake Mega Man in a modern or not Mega Man, remake uh, Castlevania rather in a, ma- a modern way. See what you can do with it. So it is exciting that what Capcom's doing in the success that they're finding could emanate and influence those around them that they too can find positive results. Absolutely. But something Chris and I were talking about on Sacred Symbols Day, and I think is actually quite relevant too, which is that we're getting to the point now where a remake of a game or a re-release or a remaster is going to probably be the final way that you see something because the consoles are all going to connect to each other now. Everything you have on PS4 is going to be playable on PS5, right? Yes, yes. And so it's not like you need like, oh, well, now we need to release uh these games on PS5 now. So do we re-release the old version or do we like just release a collection? Now you don't have to worry about that anymore. So the game you're putting forward is the game that people are going to play. That's maybe forever. That's a great point. Now I want, so you're saying that given that theory that the quality will really be poured in because this is your one and only shot at making this game. Right. Exactly. If you're, if you remake resident evil two, you got to do it right because It's going to be playable on Xbox Scarlet. It's going to be playable on PlayStation 5. There's going to be no reason for anyone to buy it again. And you're not going to really have the opportunity, a commercial opportunity to do it again. So you better do it now right. You're not going to have all these weird skews that you can do and and re-release collections. It's just that 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 era is dead. Yeah. And so I think that that is incredibly germane to the way that publishers specifically deal with these kinds of projects now, which is why it was so smart that Square Enix removed CyberConnect 2 from Final Fantasy VII Remake when it became clear that they weren't doing a proper job and, and and brought it internally and had their much more talented people make the game properly because they probably saw if we release Final Fantasy VII in a poor state from this fucking half-bit developer that we should have never been in bed with to begin with, then, what, then that, that's a permanent move for us. And we've been talking about remaking Final Fantasy VII for 20 years, so we yep. might as well do it right. I mean, I've told people in the past, if you want to see some really interesting shit, go to RPG Gamer, which still exists, and go read and look for letters from like 2000, 2001, 2002, or not letters, rather, uh, articles ta- about Square Enix talking about, like, yeah, we, we're going to make Final Fantasy VII on PS2. Like, th- this is stuff that they said. But but now we know that this is it. Final Fantasy VII Remake is going to be the last time you see Final Fantasy VII again. In terms of a, a, a new a version point. of it. Right. It's a great point. So you got to be very deliberate. Absolutely. Absolutely. By, the, by the way, the mansion in the first one is Spencer Mansion. Spencer Mansion. Spencer Mansion. Well done, Kyle. Now, Kyle, with Konami, maybe there is a little hope. Did you hear about the whole um, TurboGrafx-16 mini? Yeah. Which now, is kind of jump a little bit shark jumping to me. I, it's Are, a weird one. That's I mean, a weird really? one. I wonder how many people are going to... I mean, I, for me, I'm, I'm all over that. You're going to play but, East 1 and 2? <laughs> but you know how many people... It's not Nintendo. Right. And it's not even Sega. It's a, you know, it was a niche system in North America that yeah, like retro million, gamers are fond of it, but... I think it sold 2 million units or something like that here. I mean, it's really... It's, 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 it's a weird obscure. move. It's a weird move. I mean, it's cool to see... First of all, I forgot Konami owned Hudson Soft NEC and all that. I You always forget that. That at some point they swooped in and picked all that up. But yeah, so that's interesting. And you know what? It also reminds me, Capcom, we don't seem too far from the days where at least... I don't know how you felt about this, Kyle, or you guys listening... But I remember going through a whole period of time where it was like it's inevitable before Disney just buys Capcom, you know, even because of the, the because of the crossovers, just because of the crossovers, and it just seemed like, you know, like Wreck It Ralph came out 
a lot of the Capcom IP was in the movie in the back. It was just, it just seemed like a, it just seemed like it was going to happen at some point. You know, it seemed like Capcom was just struggling. They weren't really evolving. It was just about all their old classic IPs that people were fond of. And it was just like, it just makes sense for Disney to buy this. Well, they're buying everything else, you know? So it's cool to see Capcom, you know, kind of running forward with the baton, with their independence and, you know, making new things and honoring their old IPs. And it's, it's neat. It is neat because I again, I think it's a wonderful barometer to just put out something of a high quality and then see what happens. Because yeah. if the sometimes the market doesn't respond to really high quality games, like there are plenty of games that come out where I'm like, why isn't anyone playing this? Right. You know, uh, uh, and some games that come out that just there's so much shit coming out. And I mean, shit, literally, there's just so much shit coming out that you really do have to stand heads and shoulders above and then hope that someone notices you yeah standing head and shoulders above everyone with quality is just not even enough anymore that's how crazy it is because everyone's so obsessed with Fortnite and all these games that are frankly not very mm. good but that are that but that are certainly addictive and immersive and do what they do well yeah that you have to draw your attention with just something above and beyond mere quality yeah and i really think that capcom is on to something here sony is in a way too because they are remaking games and all of this that Sony's actually there's actually still a PS4 remake that's still not announced. I think that's coming out where other publishers are working to make the highest quality version of something classic and move on from it permanently. Right. And it's so exciting because now we can stop begging for things that have already happened We'll get our Chrono Trigger remake. We're going to get our Final Fantasy VI remake. We're going to get all that shit, I'm sure. Yep. And then we can let, like rest, lay it to rest so that Square Enix can also make its Octopath Traveler. And it can also invest in Tokyo RPG Factory so we can get games like I Am Setsuna and all that kind of stuff. So the unified nature of the ecosystems, I think, is just such an understated portion of all of it. Yep. And Capcom is leading the way in a lot of ways with this notion that... Quality matters, expectations matter, and like you said, being loving and caring about the source material matters. You know, it doesn't mean you have to be literal, because we see Square Enix not being literal at all with Final Fantasy VII Remake. There's nothing literal about that, about the way that game plays, the way that game looks. There's nothing about it that's literal. Releasing only the Midgar portion of a, and make it a whole game yeah. on two Blu-rays? Yeah. Very weird. So, yeah, that's what that is an exciting component for me uh, of all of this as well. I agree with you. Dagan, I wanted to ask you about some of the key features of the gameplay sure. in Resident Evil 2 and how you feel about it. Some of these things are, mm, I want to say, kind of necessary to the horror and are actually built into other games as well, such as Ammo Scarcity. And then there are some mm -hmm, things that are mm -hmm. very unique to Resident Evil, like Ink Ribbons. Right. So I'm curious. Let's, so let's take these. Like, How do you feel about games that limit your ammo? And how does that, how does that in this game add to the horror of every bullet counting. Yeah. You know, I was thinking a lot about this Kyle, especially with ammo conservation and having limited resources available to you in games. In fact, at a certain point in this game, maybe a couple of times during playing this game throughout its entirety, wondering if it would have been more fun without ammo limitations, for instance, let's say, but for this game, you know, for a survival horror game, I think, you know, not only ammo scarcity, but item scarcity in general lends to the tension. You know, you have to conserve 
you have to explore, find things, and you have to conserve, and you have to figure out what you're going to carry with you when. I think that all speaks to making an authentic survival experience, if that makes sense. And that plays so well. I, this would be a different game. It, it might be really fun. It might be really satisfying to to sort of remove those limitations. But having those limitations in this game just makes sense. Now, what difficulty level did you play? I played it on normal. You played on normal. Yeah. So that was standard difficulty. Yeah, the standard difficulty. With the Which was really cool to find out. I don't think I even realized this while I was playing maybe the first hour or two, that there's an adaptive difficulty taking yeah, it'll, place. Yeah, it'll ask you if you want to lower your difficulty level. Which is kind of cool. Yeah, you know? it's funny. I was making fun of myself with that with Aaron because a lot of games do that today. And... Like it knows if you're having a hard time. And I'm yes. like, it is always such an embarrassment when the game asks you if you want to lower the difficulty <laughs> level. But it's cool because it re- it really, it adds, for me, it there's a lot of replay value in this game besides, you know, the the A and B iterations of the, of the games, the two different characters, you know, all the normal stuff, the outfits, everything like that, but also the special playable characters and all that kind of stuff later on that you could unlock, all the unlockables. But I think that the difficulty levels, whether it be easy standard or what's the hardest what's the difficult level i think there's, i think it's easy normal and hard or something like that i'm gonna look but so you played it on standard that's what yeah. i played as well yeah so now what about for you how do you feel about you know all the all the different you know not only the ink ribbons but the items inventories you know saving ammo weapon availability what do you feel about all that well i'm with you that i think it's all quite necessary to the horror now I've always been a big proponent of ink ribbons, and and I like that. Now, if you play the game, if I recall, in the original Resident Evil 2, you had to use ink ribbons, but you only have to use them in you Resident did. Evil 2 if you play on hard. Otherwise, you don't need to use ink ribbons. And for people that don't know, you you save at res, in early Resident Evil games, you save at a typewriter that you find. You find various typewriters, and you have to use ink ribbons, and that allows you to only save a certain amount of times, which I love. Now, th- this is a thing that... I can't even overstate this. People fucking hate it. That kind of they hate it. Like, I I don't know if that's still true. But back in the day when I would make that defense and be like, this is a very clever design philosophy to force you to not save constantly. Yeah. So that you are very deliberate in the way you play. And there are consequences. So you because the game is so reliant on ammo and ammo scarcity, it's basically telling you like, well, you just missed three times, but you might as well not restart because you don't have an ink ribbon. You can't be reckless. You so, have to be thoughtful. Right. And it, it adds realism to it because it's like, well, I would doubt that Leon would hit every target every time anyway. So it makes you think twice about going back and ameliorating that situation by being like, well, I'll just go back to the, sa- the previous save and try again. Now, you can do that kind of stuff, but you can't then go back and save again. In other words, you can't just go and kill a zombie and then run back to the typewriter and save and then kill a zombie and then run back to the typewriter and save. Yeah. You could do that in the modern version of the game on normal, but that wasn't necessarily the design philosophy intended. And I think that that adds incredible tension to the game. And so I like scarce ammo. I like inventory slots. I like all that kind of stuff because... While I wouldn't like that in some games, and in, while in some games that kind of stuff is cumbersome and annoying, it's not for me here because the game wouldn't be the same without all that stuff. Think about if you play a Call of Duty game. I love Call of Duty or play any shooter where ammo is not really relevant. Like I was playing Rage 2 recently or the original Borderlands. Borderlands 3 is coming out in August or September. And these games, ammo doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you miss. It doesn't matter who the enemies are. You're killing thousands of these things. There is something fun about that, and I love that, but that's not what Resident Evil is. Resident Evil is about, like, killing zombies, and there's only maybe a few dozen of them. Yeah. 
in the game. Right. And, and, and then you have some lickers, which are these really creepy creatures and some of these aquatic enemies. But generally speaking, there are just not that many enemies. So every encounter feels really weighted. And you know what I love, Dagan? This was something that I thought was really cool. The game, because of the expansion of RAM on a PS4 and Xbox One and obviously PC, games can remember much more of what you do. And this really cool thing happened where I, I you have a dagger or a knife, like a blade in the game, and you could use it to swing at enemies, but you can also use it to stab enemies. If you're in trouble, you hit L1. If you have a knife in your inventory, you can like stab them in the neck or in the chest and like get away. Yeah. And I did that and I got away from the zombie, went about my business and then went back and I killed the zombie later and the zombie had the knife in his chest. Yeah, it stays there until you retrieve it. And then you can retrieve it. And I'm like, you know what? That's something that's really cool because that would seem obvious, but... Back in the PS3 generation, there wasn't even enough RAM for the game to remember that happened. No, that's a big thing. So that's a really people talk about like, well, what are the things that are going to that are going to happen with the next generation? The games are already so beautiful. The games are already running so well. And we're going to get obviously 4K 60 frames a second, whatever, like really amazing results. But it's the back end stuff in the computation that's really actually going to make the games better. Fallout 3 didn't remember anything about what you did in, in old locations on PS3 because it couldn't. It literally couldn't remember that kind of stuff. And in Skyrim, Skyrim wouldn't work on PS3 because the game was so overwhelmed with trying to remember that stuff that the game would just stop working after a while. So it, this is th- that represents to me the real revolution that's going to happen with video games. I know that seems like a little thing, but imagine really expanding that to an open world. Imagine expanding those consequences and remembrances to thousands of enemies, to, to hundreds of locations. Yeah. That's the power of what's coming down the pipe. It's not just in, instantaneous load times or ray tracing. and all, These are all good things, but it's it, a lot of it has to do with games that don't have AI that's clever enough, and now it's going to have real clever AI. Very good point. You know, now it's going to have... You stuff it and you stick a knife in an enemy and it's there, but there are thousands of enemies. And for some reason, imagine playing a Dynasty Warriors game like a Mousseau where it's where it's just fodder. You kill hundreds of thousands of enemies, but it's remembering certain things about the enemies that you're slicing and stuff. That's, so impressive. That's what's exciting. Yeah, I agree with you. It really is. Those little seemingly small touches really aren't small. They're huge things, especially for people that have been playing games as long as we have, you know, and seeing that evolution. Now, did you manage to break a knife? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Plenty of times. Yeah. A few of them. Yeah. 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 I like that, too, that I don't remember if that's in the original original Resident Evil 2, but that knives are because you really could spam knives in the game, you know, using it in a slicing way to kill some of the, the standard zombies. So you don't waste bullets, which is something that I really did. It's kind yeah. of a risk reward thing because you're putting yourself in danger yeah, by doing that, that close. Yeah. But yeah, I like that there's a degradation with the knives and that taken combined with the am- the limited am- ammunition. Yep. I use my grenade. I was playing as Claire recently and I use my grenade launcher uh, with, you know, the fire rounds to try to like line zombies up. I was like, well, is it worth me saving six handgun ammo at least by using one grenade and killing them both at the same time? Right, you think through all that. That's just something that's something that happens in a lot of these other games. Like, ah, oh, fuck it. There's like literally ammo everywhere. It's never going to let you run out of ammo. <laughs> this this philosophy digging reminds me a lot of the, the whole thing with shooters about whether games should have regenerative health or like health bars. Yeah. And obviously games like Doom and Resistance and games like that have health bars and then Call of Duty and Battlefield and stuff have regenerative health. These are philosophies that are going to be continue to be waged and, and, and fought about for a long time to come. Yeah. But I think that Resident Evil 2 really conclusively shows that in a game like this, these are the kinds of things that are necessary. Otherwise, the game simply doesn't work. The claustrophobia, the backtracking, all of that's necessary, but so too is the inventory management. So too is making the right ammo or 
mixing the herbs in a specific way to, to maximize what you have, all those kinds of things. Yeah, you can mix two green herbs together and get, you know, half your health back. But if you can just wait and try to find a red herb, yeah, you might die before you find it. But if you do and you combine that with a green herb, you're going to get all of your health back. Sure. There's Take- a there's a consequence and a thought like that around every corner in Resident Evil 2 for six or eight hours, however long the game takes. Yeah. Play. Yeah, that's about right. And that's yeah. the other thing I like about the game is it's short. And, and, it and, is. And, and a game that... Or in an era where, and someone had wrote, wrote into us, I think, I, I saw this somewhere where, I think they wrote in the Sacred Symbols, where it's like, games take so long. It, it is almost ridiculous. I actually think we've gotten to the point where games are getting too big. And that's not something that, that's a very contentious thing. The Witcher 3 was the first game I encountered back in 2015, where I was like, this is too much. This is way too much game. How long was that? I played it for like 45 hours okay. and the game was littered with question marks all over the map. Things I still had to do. And okay. I probably needed another 40 hours to do it at least. Wow. And that's cool because I know I know that when I was younger, I loved bang for my buck. If someone was like, you can, you're going to spend 100 hours with this game. I'd be like, fuck yeah. Right. But as an adult with money and means and also other things to do, a game like this is quite refreshing to play. Because it doesn't require your time. I just I walk away from games all the time because I'm like, I just don't want to play this. anymore. Yeah, you could get in and out and really enjoy it. Yeah. So it, it, I, I love that. In a day or two. Exactly. Which yeah. is great. It's a great weekend game. So the other thing I wanted to talk about, Dig, or one of the other things I want to talk about was Mr. X. <laughs> now, Mr. <laughs> X is this character that you meet uh, maybe a third of the way into the game. Yeah. He and, pro- and the now we, we Kyle and I didn't communicate about this. We what we were gonna do, who, which character we were gonna choose, which scenario we were gonna choose. So now you played Kyle. Remind me, you played Claire. Yeah. So when the I game came Claire out, too. I played as Leon, okay. and I got to the almost to the end, and then I stopped playing it. Okay. And then a week or so ago, I started playing as Claire just to refresh my memory, and I and I basically stopped at the same point in her own adventure because I ran out of time. Yeah. But in playing with both of them, the experience felt somewhat the same to me. It's not literally the same. There are different locations. You meet like Ada Wong. If you play as Leon, you meet Sherry, the little girl. If you play as Claire, there's entire scenarios that you just don't see depending on who you play as. And then they converge and then they diverge and all that kind of stuff. But I don't know that I prefer having played both of the both of the quests to almost fruition. I don't know that I preferred one over the other necessarily. Yeah. I think that I prefer playing as males typically because if I have a choice, typically just because I feel like that might be a little bit more immersive for me if I'm pretending that I'm Leon, for instance. Good point. But I liked Claire. I, I liked Claire's voice acting a lot more. She was good. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. The acting. I mean, not only the graphics good in this game, the acting is really good in this game. There's a little there's some uncanny valley. I'm not going to lie. I'm super sensitive to that, especially in the facial. And particularly, I, I know that particular um, CG model was under a lot of sort of criticism for being particularly toothy. You know, she's toothy and she has, she shows bears her teeth and a lot of, but apparently the voice actress, and I watched some footage, the voice actress or the, even the physical actress that she was mocapped off of, modeled off of is that's how she looks. So they were just really literal with the mocap and, you know, graphically transferring one to the other, but she was great. I mean, first of all, she's adorable in this game. I think she's so cute. Claire. Definitely. And Leon. But she, yeah, the voice acting is really good. And I love also, before I forget to mention, I also love all the, there's some exposition, you know, in the voice acting and in the dialogue, even dating back all the way to the very intro of the game with the truck driver. But again, it has that sort of kitschy B-horror movie resonance to it. But also, it's it's actually really kind of relatable. Like she's cursing to herself. 
she uh, you know she's like calling the zombie an asshole or son of a bitch or whatever she at one point she says it to the dog one of the dogs attacking it's like you asshole <laughs> you know and it's completely probably randomized but it was so funny like it just added that little bit of extra authenticity you know you would probably call the dog an asshole if you were in that situation so that was really a lot of fun you know and also Kyle also before I forget to mention I mean again with you know whatever kind of argument there is between making it a, a, an unlimited resource versus limited resource type of a game model first of all there's room for everything it depends on what the game is but in resident evil specifically this game that we're discussing today how scary is it is it if you have a machine gun with unlimited ammunition is it really that scary being immersed in a zombie apocalypse if you have that at your disposal right exactly you know that doesn't add to the horror no it doesn't make any it doesn't make any sense now i know you can unlock a lot of that stuff you can unlock unlimited ammo and all that kind of stuff and play the game in an arcadey way yeah yeah exactly arcadey perfect yeah Yeah. give give you the option right later on to play you know because to get the s ranking and all that kind of stuff you're really going to need to cruise through the game much more effectively than you could with you know, your your normal run of the mill stuff that's going on in the game. So right. I really enjoyed I, I really enjoyed the balance, the, the systemic balance that the game brought. I think that it was really deliberate. And I think that that that's the kind of stuff, the design of a game like that, I think, is often under uh, unher- unheralded or understated because you can tell what works well. The game's running at a, at a nice frame rate. So the engine is engineered properly and the game looks beautiful and the animations are nice and all this kind of stuff. But the design game design is its whole own discipline. And that's not happening by, that's not, the person that's animating is not designing the game. You know, no. so, someone's coming in and balancing this and saying like, this is how, this. there's too much, they played these games over and over and over again in alpha. And once the game is what's called content complete, and they they play it through and they let other people play it and they and they look at the stats and they heat map and all those kinds of stuff and they, and they figure out what's the perfect amount of ammo? Where do these zombies need to come from? how do these zombies come back and yeah where is the ammo it's such yep. an art form it really is such an art it's probably I, I i know this sounds so dramatic because maybe it is but i don't think it is that might be the hardest part of making a game i think it is because it's the it's the part of the game that's most abstract it's the essence of the game right you know it's just like designing stages it's just like why Mega Man is such a such a masterclass in 2d design or castlevania because it's all so deliberate. It's not the way the game is laid out. It's the way the enemies come at you. It's the the amount of enemies, the damage they do, the way you can get around them, the way the game teaches you how to play it. Right. All that kind of stuff. Th- that level of design is way more difficult than just laying something out or making an animated character. I, I just think that that like that's way above my pay grade, like to, to be to, to know how to do that kind of all of that's above my pay grade. So hard to know how to do that properly and to be a master of design is uh, is really difficult. I mean, that's why Miyamoto is so well respected. It's not only that he has some art chops and obviously a lot of character design chops and all that stuff. He's a designer. Yeah. Of game of game. You know, he's a game designer, which is crazy. And it's you know, it's also the aspect of the game that's the easiest to take for granted. Because it's not right there. It's not a tangible thing. It's not a, a voice. It's not an. It's not a part of the graphic. It's not a sprite. You know, it's something that's just the inherent building block of the game. It's that foundation. You know. Oh yeah, this this game just. I was really. I was again. I was really surprised at how good that this game was. Even to the. You know, it, this game even reminds you. It's so smooth and it's so fluid. It even reminds you like everything is perfect. Like to the degree of like how long it takes for a dialogue box to open up and close back down again. You know, the amount of frames that takes, it's just really, really well thought out. Very well, as well crafted as any game I've seen in the modern age. And again, I haven't seen nearly as many games as you have, but I can't imagine it being much tighter than this. 
you know, as far as all those things are concerned. No, again, I think that people were very surprised by the caliber of this game. And like you said, remove Resident Evil 2 from it, remove some of the, the hallmarks of Resident Evil like Umbrella, and you have yourself a game that's perfectly fine. And and by the way, a game that stands without having, again, the game takes place in September 1998, which is around the same time, or I think, the, I think July or June 1998 is when the original Resident Evil takes place, but... You don't really need to know that. It's not really that relevant. Right. To to your enjoyment of this game. I'm not I'm not like a Resident Evil maestro by any stretch of the imagination. I like the series a lot. But I'm not really like a nerd about the lore. Like I don't know like everything about the way the games connect, especially I have a lot of fuzziness in the Nemesis era and stuff too. But I I did bring up earlier and I don't want to forget Mr. X. Yeah, we got to talk about Mr. X is because we were talking about design and design philosophies. The entire idea of Mr. X is one of the most clever design philosophies I have ever encountered in a game. And not just recently, but ever, because the game allows you or at least makes you think that you can just kind of chill. If you're not in uh, immediate danger with some of these small zombies. And at this point, you've met a couple of lickers, which are these. We'll talk about them in a minute. They're, they're pretty cool creatures, too, that are incredibly frightening. But the game at least lets you feel like, all right, well, you can go back to the lobby and chill. You can go into these save rooms and chill. You don't hear anything. So there's probably no enemies around you. But then you meet Mr. X, who is this really horrifying guy in like a trench coat and a top hat. You can shoot his top hat off for a trophy if you want. (laughs) And he constantly follows you for the next third of the game. So you play about a third of the game without him you play about a third of the game with him and then yeah. he's killed i don't like the way he's killed because you don't kill him yeah that which was, is a little disappointing i was very disappointed in that but i loved this idea so for people that don't know he's probably like eight feet tall or something he's human or he humanoid through doorways yeah yeah which exactly is so cool and he's just always going after you but not running just walking like yes. a, a classic Mike Myers horror right or exactly. Jason horror exactly he might speed up a little bit when he's near you just to like get you but you can hear him. And, and what's funny is the gameplay, there's interplay between how much noise you make in the game and how quickly he can find you. So if you're running around or shooting, then he's going to find you. Yeah. But otherwise, he will simply walk around until he encounters you. And you can hear him. You can hear him upstairs. You can hear him downstairs. Sometimes you don't hear him at all. And then you're safe for a little while. And I just thought that that I love imminence in games sometimes. It's the same reason why. I love uh, Majora's Mask so much and why that's my favorite Zelda game is because that game was so different than other Zelda games because it required an attention to time. And while the entire Resident Evil 2 campaign doesn't require an attention to time, that part of the campaign requires it. And I think it's awesome. Like, it's scary. It's authentically scary. It's horrifying when you're like you hear and you don't know where he is. Like You hear him. You have no idea. He's somewhere. Yeah. And. Aaron was watching me play for a little while and scared the shit out of us. <laughs> like I was going to walk through a door and he popped through the yeah, door. Yeah, you never know and he's going to pop up. You and, really don't. And apparently someone had told me this and I think it's true. I don't know for sure okay. that in the remake, he actually does occupy a space at all times. So it's not like, oh, he has boundaries. Yeah. So it's not like, in other words, it's not like the game is just saying like, well, he's hypothetically over here. And so we're going to make some noises and all this kind of stuff. Like he literally is walking around the map. So, oh, okay. You know what I mean? So it's not like in in previous or prior games, again, again, this goes back to the computation power of a console where it can remember that kind of stuff because that would usually just be tricked. Yeah. Into being like, well, he's not actually rendered anywhere. He's there's a little code telling him to walk like that code walking around, but he's not actually there until you need to see him. Is, it, appara- ran- is it randomized? Can it be different every time? I don't know. Because I only played through once. The, my, the one thing I did like too about that is that he knows where you are sometimes and walks away from you. 
which is an, which is another thing that I think is awesome. Yeah. Especially in the lobby and especially where the helicopter crashes through sometimes in that staircase, he will look at you and see you and then just like walk downstairs or something like that. And which it's like, is interesting. Yeah. That's where you first see him with the Claire campaign, right? With the helicopter. Right. He yeah. That's moves you, it out of his way. And then yeah, that's he, it. That's the reveal. Yeah. You put the fire out of the helicopter crash and then, yeah. And then he moves it out of the way and you're able Dude. to access now the clock tower, I think, in the game. Right. That's right. He, he is. He is absolutely terrifying. I great. love the Michael Myers sort of resonance that he has. You know, he adds a sense of urgency. First of all, you can't stand, you, you, it totally subtracts any, you know, semblance of you finding a safe spot and standing still because he will get you. You know what I mean? So now you have to keep moving. You have to stay ahead of him. And I love what you already said. He pursues you continuously. He pursues you, you know, steadily. And, but it's, there's no urgency to, he doesn't run. He has a determined walk, but he doesn't run, which makes it, you know, he almost has this posture of like that. He reminds you that you are no, absolutely no threat to him, but he is going to get you and he doesn't have to move fast because he's going to eventually get you. It's again, it's that whole Michael Myers thing. The one thing that bothered me a little bit about Mr. X, and I don't know if I have a solution for this. I wanted to pick your brain on this call. He does a couple of different attacks. He could punch. He does like a big arcing swinging punch and he also could pick you up, but I don't know. I thought the punch was a little too comedic or something. It seems a little, I mean, what's better? Does he carry a giant butcher knife like Mike Myers? Does he have some kind of other projectile weapon? I mean, that wouldn't be very threatening. I don't know what the solution is, but I thought the punch was a little weird. Like the, you know, finally when he catches up to you, then he just hauls off and punches himself. It's like a bar fight type thing. It's just like weird. All of a sudden this gigantic threatening thing is like lurking over you and then he just goes to punch you. It doesn't seem, I don't know, it doesn't seem like creepy enough. You know, it doesn't seem like he's this, you know, zombie-like, monster-like being. It seems like he, he's he's like this monster, but he's attacking you like a human would attack you. you yeah, know? it is a little weird. I guess, I guess the only thing I can say about that is I, I suppose that it adds a little horror in the sense that you don't really know what he's going to do to you. Yeah. Like, he doesn't carry an implement, so right. what is he going to do? When he catches up to you, I, I wish that he didn't punch. I wish that him catching you just automatically killed you. I think that that would be much more satisfying mm, mm, mm. because that would make him much more dangerous. Yeah. Where it's like you literally have because when it, like there are hallways where like he's there and the liquor's there. Yes. Which is horrifying because you can't move oh, quickly that's with the, the worst situation. And you don't really want to kill the liquors because it's a waste of ammo. But then you really kind of need to if you fast. want and they return as well. Then they like they repopulate the liquors for people that don't know. And I, this is another great design philosophy is the liquors are these like arachnid like creatures that can walk on ceilings and walls, but they can't see you. So you can walk around them yeah. and you can actually damage their hearing by firing in certain places so that they have no idea where you are. So there's really cool. That's really a cool thing where they just basically swing wildly and have no idea where you are. And you can even shoot them and then like just remain quiet. And they're, they're just confused. Yeah. I think that that balanced the game so well with the dumb zombies that do know where you are and do come back and come back to life a little too much, if I, if I might say. That's a little bit of a complaint I have. Okay. But I liked that there were these different tiers of enemies. I liked also with the the kind of infantry zombies, let's say, yeah. that they were all so different from each other. Different racial makeups, different outfits, different genders, obviously. Yeah. They weren't just like models of a few different enemies, which is a thing that you encounter even in really high budget games. I mean, a game like Call of Duty, you're going to run into a lot of different of the same models. These are $100 million games, guys. I mean, if Activision and their developers are doing that kind of stuff, you would expect 
that you would see something like that in a much lower budget game. Yeah. Like Resident Evil 2, but you don't. I don't know that there are more than I actually think that I, someone can call me out on this, but I think maybe every zombie model is actually unique or at least somewhat unique. Yeah, they might like be where it might be a fat cop, but there's a fat white cop and a fat black cop. Yeah. Right. Stuff yes. like that. Yeah. So I think that if they're a yeah, good the, point, if yeah. the models are used again, which they might be, I think that they even make little differences to them to just make it seem like a real population of zombies, not yeah. not just an infantry army of zombies. That makes no sense. These are people that worked there. Great point. Great so, of point. course, they would be dressed differently and all this kind of stuff and acting right. differently. So I, I really enjoyed that as well. And, you know, the the one thing that I like about Resident Evil games generally, Dagan, is that I've, I've been very self-deprecating about this in the past because it's true. I'm just not very good at adventure games. I don't have the patience for them. I think adventure games require a certain kind of logic that doesn't really make any sense or actually ground itself in real logic. I, those games really annoy the show. Give me, me an example. Well, just like uh, a good example would be like anything Telltale has made. But oh, OK, but even the older Telltale games that were actually more difficult and more puzzle oriented or, you know, it's Sam and Max or a game like that. Like those are good examples oh, sure. where I'm like, I don't know. It's like connect the cord to the light and turn, you know, like that kind of stuff. And I'm like, all right. And then you do it in a way that you think is logical and it doesn't work. I'm like, I don't have any patience for this. Right, this is right. not this even remotely fun. fun. Like, I want to be clear, <laughs> not even remotely fun. Right. To just sit there and like, I hear you on that. Ugh. So Resident Evil 2 is a game that makes me feel like a powerful puzzle solver because the the puzzles are really just means to an end. When you see when you get a document and on the back of it, when you flip it around, you read that there's like a combination for a locker. It's like, all right, well, that's all I needed to know about that. And then you just figure that out. Or when you encounter uh, these different these different plaques or whatever that you need to fill in to, to, to get rid of the maiden statue so you can go into the, the subterranean part of the of the police station like these are obvious puzzles that just require you to search they don't require you to really like get insane and when the puzzles do get a little more in depth like the chess puzzle and all those kinds of things it's like right it's it's very solvable and that's the thing that i think makes the game so accessible and so interesting and actually such an interesting game for casual players as well because to your point about how the game asks you if you want to lower the difficulty, Aaron asked me about that and why that might be. And I'm like, I think that the reason that they're doing that is because casual players don't even know that that's an option. Right. So if they're dying and getting frustrated, the game should probably tell them that they can make it better so they don't walk away from it. But the same kind of philosophy is true for me with these kinds of puzzles where I run into like even in Tomb Raider, like Shadow of the Tomb Raider or something like that. Some yeah. of the puzzles in the game, like I'm not even bothering Tomb Raider. I'm just going to look this that. up. Right. Because I like because here's what's going to happen. I'm going to sit here for an hour and be really annoyed or I can just go on YouTube and solve it in five minutes and move on with my life <laughs> because I don't. This is not this is not the cha I like challenge in combat. That's like the kind of challenge I like. Okay, yeah. You know, 2D side scrollers that are really hard, shmups that are really hard, shooters, first person and third person shooters that are really hard. Yeah. I like that. That's your preference. I don't like being put into this obtuse situation where I have to make solve all this bullshit. That's reasonable. That's I not mean, fun to me. It's why that game, The Witness, that everyone loved by Jonathan Blow. Yeah. People are like in love with that game. I'm like, that game is a nightmare. <laughs> of just problem solving? Of, of just endless Puzzle, problem puzzles. solving. Like, why don't I just go back to school? Right. That's oh, not I, why fun. don't I just go take a fucking logic philosophy class? <laughs> That'll probably be more fun than this. That's not fun after a fashion. Oh. Yeah. So I really enjoyed, you know, and again, it's a self-deprecating thing. I don't have the talent to solve some of this shit because I don't have the patience for it. It's the patience thing. And so, yeah, I guess I could sit there and, and solve it like I'm solving a fucking problem at school again. That's really not why I play video games. Right. Exactly. So I liked the accessibility where even it was just a, it was a fetch quest 
or it was something like these chess pieces are here. You just really need to understand the names of the chess pieces because yeah. it tells you how to solve it in the game or like little door kind of puzzles when you get the electric cannon out of that basement room where you have to use the king and queen piece. Oh, but yeah. You're basically just using them. It's very obvious the way you use for them. The last boss fight. No, not not for that. For for when you're getting the gun in the basement. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. So, yes. That, yeah, before you even go to the lab. Yeah. So I like that it has this pretense yeah. of puzzle solving and adventuring yes. in the gaming sense, but it's not really those things. And I actually think that that's quite preferable to the way the first Resident Evil game was, which I thought was a little more obtuse in that regard. And it, the game's progressively get less obtuse, which I think is fun. You don't want to get too unobtuse because then you have Resident Evil 5, right? Where you have a game that's just an action shooter. Right. You don't want that. Right. You want something like Resident Evil 4. Yeah, right. Which we'll also talk about. Which is still, I think, maybe the best. It's actually pretty tough now because Resident Evil 2 remake is so good. And Resident Evil 7 is excellent. Uh, Right. RE7 is another one. So it's hard to say that Resident Evil 4 was always the fallback answer, but there's actually not a great way to play Resident Evil 4 with modern controls. I actually went to play it. We were originally going to do a Resident Evil 4 episode, if you remember. We're still going to do it. We're going to do it later, but I canceled it for now because I was like, I can't play this. Like, I can't believe I liked this game. It's hard. You know, I loved it. Like when I was when I was in college, when that game came out, I've told the story before that I took about a year off from gaming. But two games came out that year that I played, which was San Andreas and Resident Evil 4. Oh, makes sense. Sure. And I was enamored with Resident Evil 4. I was like, this is incredible. Everybody loved it. But now go back. I'm telling you guys, go back and play it now. And it's one of those games that needs this treatment. It needs this treatment because go back and play Resident Evil 2. Here's what you're going to encounter when you play Resident Evil 2. Camera angles that change every three seconds. Yeah. You have no control over them. Fixed camera. Yeah, fixed camera angles. A really great... I actually talked about this in my review of Animusha, which Capcom re-released just as is. And I love Animusha. I'm a big fan. That's a KG and a Fune game. And Afune is obviously my boy, <laughs> but that game is so antiquated and so old. And it's only a couple years older than Resident Evil uh, 2, the yeah. original, where I was like, wow, man, this is not that great. Doesn't because well. there are boss battles in that game where you're running around on a rectangle where the camera angle changes like 17 oh, times. That's it's infu- horrible. But that was, the way, that was the way we played. That was the era. That really was. And so when I played Resident Evil 4, which is not Resident Evil 4 is much more over the shoulder. And it's it's, it's not that. But it's just not solid enough to play it anymore. <laughs> like yeah. I have expectations that are, that quite outstrip the way, it, the way the game plays. Yeah. And so my only hope, I, I would love for them to do nemesis and all that stuff first, but and resident evil zero, which I think is probably the most underrated resident evil game. I'd love for them to give that the treatment, but man, resident evil four, triple a modern $50 million budget, $10 million marketing campaign. Just jump right to, cause they, I think they, I think, I think they committed to I think they have admitted that they're developing three. Yeah. Well, I think right? it makes sense for them to because Go in order yeah, that makes sense. Dagan only because why? How would you get people excited after you did four? We we did right. four. Now we're going to go back to the games that are not as good as four. Right, exactly. You might as well go in order. Great point. You know, yeah, so yeah. I, I understand that's going to take that probably takes a lot of restraint, though, because if I was at Capcom and I was on the board or a stockholder, I'd be like, what are you doing? Right. Like make Resident Evil four, make Mega Man two, make just make these games make street make street fighter 2 again yeah have some balls what and make street fighter 2 again what would you do with that make it How still no do? 2.5d still 2d 2d sprites right but beautiful beautiful i never even thought of that to be honest with you. why can't you do that now the game's beautiful as it is it is but it can be way more beautiful oh my god can and you still imagine? keep that aesthetic i mean even look at games that are like dark stalkers or marvel versus capcom that are older or yeah. newer rather 
they're all in the same aesthetic. It's just that they just look better. Yeah. Because the resolutions are different and the power is different. Exactly. So I think that that would be a lot of fun. So absolutely. So I think that that's I think that that's one of the things about it, Dave. But, you know, I'm looking through my notes here. I'm not I'm not so sure that I have that much more that I want to touch on. Other than, I guess, let me see here. I love that you said it was accessible because the game is is also reasonably difficult. I would say after a fashion, especially if you play on standard or, oh, uh, by the way, Kyle, it's uh, assisted standard and hardcore mode. Hardcore. Okay. Assisted. Yeah, that's cool. So. Which probably know. allows you to auto aim and stuff like that, I would assume and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. And hardcore was what? Ink ribbon. And they say that there was even, they minimized even the resources and the items and the ammo a little bit more. So there's even a little less of availability of those things, supposedly. I really wanted to try a hardcore campaign. I will try one, but I didn't get to do it in time for the talk today. But yeah, I mean, but but it is the game. The game does have a reasonable, you know, like you said, with the puzzles and keeping them reasonable, the game feels like it gives you things to do. So it's important to have those components in there, as you said, which is not, which is nice because the, ga- the game makes you feel busy. And, you know, you also said too the enemy types that can't be overstated there. There is an enemy type. There's every kind of enemy type in this game. You have the slow lumbering army of zombies. You know, their their biggest threat is that they're, you know, they're numerous. You know, they're in great numbers. And then you have the the lickers who you know, they're very quick. They're also very powerful. I think two slashes from a licker could kill you with full with full life if I'm not mistaken. But like you said, they could be evaded if you move very slowly. I never had a lot of success evaded them in evading them. I'm not sure why I I might have been moving too fast. Supposedly, if you just maintain a little distance and you move reasonably slow, yeah, you have to throttle. You, you have to thro- blind. You have to throttle the stick. So I, I think that yeah, because they're blind, so they can only hear right. you. But if you push the stick forward, Claire and Leon only walk, but they walk at a normal gait. I think right. you have to actually throttle the stick even from there to get by them. Because th- that's some of the great. Mo- those oh, are some of the great moments sense. in the game. I think is like they're like right in your face, right on a wall, and you're literally just trying to sneak around them. It's it, it, it adds so much immersion to the game and it really does make you question like, well, should I just kill this motherfucker? Because right. uh, then uh, it's going to cost some ammo and all this, but then I don't have to deal with it later. And I actually when I played as Claire, I actually did start killing them. When I played as Leon, I actually tried to get around them as much as possible, okay. which caused, again, a lot of complications with the Mr. X scene, because if you can't run away from him in those hallways, because then the liquors are going to kill you. Right. So to being cognizant of that, I, I just used a grenade on if you if you a well-timed fo- a flame round from a grenade launcher will kill them in one hit. But you can also, again, damage their hearing so they can't hear you. Right. That's cool. That's also very cool. Now, Kyle, did you notice I noticed this a couple of times during my campaign with um, Claire. Mr. X will stop if you're being engaged by a zombie specifically. If a zombie is attacking you, if a zombie's eat you, biting you, he will stop. He will hold off. Oh, I didn't even notice that. Yeah. I wonder, it happened to me like twice. I wonder why that is. I wonder if it's like some sort of war or if it's like a thing to not overwhelm you in the game. Yeah, I don't know. Because at the same time, if a zombie's in his way, he will move it. He will p- literally push the whatever's in his way out of his way. But that was that was a little interesting bit of AI that might have been a little bit of a glitchy type thing. The only other thing I noticed in this game that bothered me a little bit, and that's because I was really looking, I was really being analytical with the settings. The same for some reason I didn't see this with any other with any other piece of artwork or any other sort of feature of the backgrounds, but the cars that are in the parking garage and on the street and everything, they reuse those models. There's like a mini a red Mini Cooper, there's like a white 
Nissan 350Z shaped car. They reuse those a lot throughout the things to like almost an obnoxious degree. It's like that car again. Like, why couldn't they just change the color or take a wheel off of it or something? You know what I mean? Expose the axle, something that that bothered me. But again, I was I was looking. I didn't see anything else like that, though. I really didn't. Oh, you know what we should talk about? The boarding up mechanic. Yeah, I, I do love that. Yeah, so talk to us a little bit about that. So that that was a real that that feature of this game I really loved was that you could find boards, you know, planks, wooden planks as an item here and there, and collect them, and then you could actually seal up windows to keep zombies out because they there are certain p- parts of the game. I'm not sure if it's just the police station, which again, you know, is a good half of probably. Probably half the game takes place. Yeah, I think it is only the police station where you can use them. I don't think they are using. So you could you could actually use them and sort of judge if you you know especially if there's going to be a zone, if you could just hold off on using it for the first hour hour or two, and you could see a particular corridor or two that you use a lot, that you could actually board up those areas that you sort of access a lot to keep the zombies to a minimum. Which is kind of neat. That was a kind of a neat little thoughtful mechanic, a nice little touch. Yeah, I liked that too, especially to your point, there are many more open windows than there are boards you'll encounter. So you have to be very deliberate. And it, the game really does suggest that you should probably use them all in the same place because otherwise they probably aren't as effective. I like using them in that on that corridor leading to the film room or the dark room that leads to those stairs that go all the way up to the top. Yes, that's a good because you're always in that corridor. So that's a really good place to use it. And on the other side near the helicopter, when it crashes is another another good spot to use them as well. But yeah, there it's the I think it's the little things in the game and maybe these things are also in other games as well, but that I'll give it some replay value too apart from the multiple campaigns and difficulty levels is well, how am I going to use the ammo here? How, how, what what will I develop with my my gunpowder here? Like for instance, I have a case full of gunpowder in my in my Claire game. Like you I haven't used, used any it. of it. I, like I don't even know certain com I want to experiment because I'm like I don't even know I know some of the combinations but not all of them yeah so it's like wow should I have just been much more liberal in using this would the game have been easier it gives you reasons to play again and of course the different things that you unlock because I was talking to someone when I looked at the trophy list I was like wow this is impossible because it's like S ranks for all of them beating the game in under three hours beating the game in fewer than 14,000 steps which is a funny one oh, that's a funny one but people were like no dude you unlock so much shit when you beat the game that it's like impossible not to get some of this stuff right like unlimited ammo unlimited health whatever the case might be so the game again turns into an arcadey experience later if you wanted to if you wanted to but the under the one enemy that we didn't mention that I do want to talk about is the are the aquatic enemies in the, the G, sewers what are they called G adult G adult yeah, some monsters, whatever they're called. The one that they frustrated me a little bit, Dagan, because they're so easy to dodge that you don't even need to fight them, really. Yeah. And even if you miss one or two of your dodges, they just do a little bit of damage. So that was a little anticlimactic for me because you encounter these things, especially in this one like labyrinthine run through the water where you encounter like four or five of them. And you're yeah. d- I'm just like moving around them. They're too slow. And I'm like, I didn't need to fight them at all. They're nice for a set piece. Yeah. They're they're frightening looking. Actually, they look very similar to the demigorgon in Stranger Things. So I don't know who copied who there. They have that sort of flowering mouth face. Right, right. Huh. That's curious. Mm. I don't know who copied who on that. That one. is strange. Duffer Brothers. Er, that's a strange, see strange thing. I see what you did there. That was pretty bad. But yeah, they were they were interesting. And then there's also, um, if I'm if I'm remembering correctly, there's also a sort of an iteration of the ivy. Yeah, types, later on in the game. Yeah. Right. Yep. Which are cool. Which you really have to. I think you can only kill them with fire permanently. I think you can disable them. Okay. 
So yeah, there. Are, I actually like that. There's a limited number of enemies because this is again the grounded, quote unquote, grounded nature of Resident Evil Two for me. Yeah, it's a fucking zombie game, so it's not that grounded. <laughs> but you know, the thing that might really say something about it, Dagan, is that I think zombies are so played out, like to the point of, I I can't even imagine anything more played out than zombies. Uh, I don't know. I mean, maybe maybe what someone did it for you? Was, Walking Dead. Walking Dead. Yeah, just okay. the Walking Dead. Everything. But then there's just a ton of zombie shit all the time. There's just a lot of it. Dead Rising and all. Uh, it never stops. It's right? a genre, and I'm tired of it. And it doesn't do it for me at all. It's just boring as shit. There are certain games that do it really well, like Dying Light is an immaculate game, a zombie game, because it, it, first of all, it takes place in like Turkey, which is really cool. And oh, that's it's, interesting. It's, it, it, well, in a country that's supposed to be Turkey and, okay. you know, all this kind of stuff. So the setting really made that. But zombies usually are like, uh, yeah. you know, but I, I think the, the cool thing with Resident Evil is that it there's only like a half dozen types of zombies in the game. Yeah. And there's a limited number of enemies, like we said, and combined with the limited number of ammo and, and and the claustrophobic nature of the settings and the backtracking and not knowing when, you know, you kill a zombie, you go back, he's alive, he like gets back up and stuff and you have to blow his head off literally. And I, I liked this kind of stuff. I think this all makes it and all adds up to making Resident Evil 2 such a special game. The remake, I'm so glad that we're doing a more timely episode of Knockback because the remake really should be played. Yeah, absolutely. I like these episodes. I mean, again, we could kind of cheat it and just say, like if anybody ever said, well, that's not a retro topic it, it kind of is because it's based off of a retro game you know a game from 1998 21 years ago yeah our only rule for this is that it needs to be done done and resident evil 2 is i, I assure you most definitely done at this point. <laughs> so hey and i was thinking about that by the way i i read that uh, attack on titans ending right the anime? well the manga the manga is ending he, oh, the he already ending. yeah he already had a plan for ending the manga so eventually, yeah, but you know, we're in season 3.2 right now. I'm actually two episodes behind right now. It's the first time I've ever been behind with a series since it started, I think. Um, so I'm actually, but I, of course I read the manga. So I read the English translated manga. So I'm up to date on what happens. I'm way ahead of where that cartoon series is. But yeah, Kyle, you got to get back into it, dude. It gets so, it's so good. This There's something, there's something wonderful in every season so far. Oh, I really liked it a lot. I watched, you know, 10 episodes in like two days. And then for some reason, I just never went back to it. Yeah, there's 60 something episodes. Yeah, I loved I loved it. I thought it was, you know, I want to talk about frightening. I thought that that was some of the most unsettling shit I have ever seen in my life, whether it animated or not. Just yeah. the, the the big do, you know, the big titans and stuff. And it's a play on the zombie thing. It's it's so much cooler. It, it's it's like fantasy world. zombies. Yes. Like fa- Dungeons and Dragons zombies. Right. Because they don't have modern weapons necessarily they get the weapons sort of evolve i don't want to spoil anything for you or for anybody else who hasn't kept up with it so far but yeah that's but you know think about that's what i always said about it that was one of the alluring things about attack on titan it was like they're essentially fighting zombies with you know sort of primitive weapons although they they could fly and stuff like that that are basically 60 meter tall zombies that later on are intelligent and can run and can think and can plot and so it's absolutely terrifying you know, like, it doesn't get any scarier than that. And how are these kids going to deal with this? These young people, like, you know, fighting this threat that they don't even know what the hell it's all about. You know, they're trying to investigate wh- who are the, what are these things and why are, why are they pursuing us? Why are they eating us? So, yeah, Attack on Titan is brilliant. I love the whole thing of, like, the three walls, like, around yeah. each other and stuff. I think it's a really neat. So neat. Dude. Neat story. So we'll, we'll obviously get to that. Of course. Dig, how do you want to wrap this one up? Do you have any closing comments? You know what? I think we have to just refer to just briefly talk about the music oh of course very underplayed very understated a lot of people complain that we don't well not a lot of people but a lot of people complain that we don't talk enough about the music yeah that's something that 
it's it's not necessarily an afterthought for me. It's just that I get so wrapped up in the, you know, I'm very visual, so obviously, so I get very wrapped up in the visual aspects of things. So I have to remind myself. But I love the audio, the set, not only the music, but the sound design in general in this game. It's really understated and underplayed in a very clever, in a very clever way, not in a lazy way. I mean, it's very a lot of it is just ambient sound. And when the music cues kick in, for instance, the little theme that they play when Mr. X is getting close, it really drives the suspense and the tension. And it's very well used in that regard. You know, that's what I'll say about the sound in this game. I really love it. It never gets in the way. It's never obnoxious. There's no earworms in it, you know, that type of thing. It's just really, you know, like we're going to do an episode on Jurassic Park, which is like that The Jurassic Park theme, the main theme that's threaded throughout the movie is such an ear fucking worm, you know, and it's like one of those things where you could actually ignore it. But then when somebody brings it up again, then you're going to pay attention to it again for two weeks. You know, that type of thing. I love that this game has a, you know, the, it's a, it's thoughtful, but it's it's downplayed. And that's neat. Yeah, it's funny, man, because I'm a musician and a, and a great lover of music. And you had said that it's an after, not an afterthought for you. Honestly, the soundtrack and score in a lot of games is an afterthought for me. It's, it's, the it's last like, thing you think about. It's like, for, I know a lot of people know this about me, but if I'm not playing a narrative driven game. So Resident Evil 2, I played with sound on. And actually, the game should be played with headphones. I think it's. Especially, oh, that's the, a good point. The way the sound, the way Mr. X walks around, like it, you know, works around your ears and from one side to this, it's actually quite helpful. Did you play that way? Uh, sometimes, yeah. Oh, that's depending on what was going on around me. That. But people know that if I'm not playing a narrative-driven game or a game that I'm not really playing for the first time, so like if I'm grinding in an RPG or I'm playing Felseal or I'm playing Bloodstained and trying to just grind for items, or whatever, I listen to podcasts or music. I don't even listen to the game. Wow. So it's one. And that I've always been that way. The old joke goes that Zelda Majora's Mask is tied forever and ever with Limp Bizkit's Chocolate Starfish for me. <laughs> really? Because I would play. But that has Ma- such a good soundtrack. It does. Game. But I would play. I got them at the same time at the mall and I would play Majora's Mask on the 64 no and I would put Limp Bizkit in the stereo and just play it on repeat. That's amazing. And so that's always been the way I was. You know, now when I play Shovel Knight or I play a Mega Man game or something like that, the music there pops and that's that that's the music, MIDI music and the chiptunes. Then I obviously love that shit. Okay. But I actually think that sometimes the score is important and the soundtrack's important in the game, but I think often it's it's it is an afterthought for me because we're because they're not they're not passive experiences right so if i'm not playing fucking sound shapes or something like that and it's not literally part of the gameplay parappa the rapper parappa the rapper great example if i'm not playing one of the or you know any rhythm game then what do i really care like that's like mm. that's one of the things that you know in other words i'm not gonna play a game and be like ah, it's a little rough but damn that music's great right. what i will do is play is be like wow this game's fucking awesome this music sucks mute and then put on uh the 538 podcast for five hours okay you know? so i play games to uh play them and then everything else wow. that's around that game. Is, I never is, knew this about you. Yeah, I I'm not nearly as bad as Chris is with this. I mean, Chris oh. does. Chris, I mean, Chris loves soundtrack and music, but Chris plays games. If the game is not fun to play, like yeah. play, yeah, he yeah. has no interest in playing the game. Okay, none, zero. Like but, people could be like, "Oh, go play this visual novel. Go play this adventure game." He's like, "That's never gonna happen." <laughs> you know. So I, I I don't want to take it to the nth degree at all, but it's one of the even when I was a critic. That was one of the things where I was like, I don't I got to actively pay attention to this because it's not that relevant. And when we would we would talk about sound, I would often talk about voice acting and stuff like that, not oh. about the, the accompanying soundtrack. Now, some people think that that's really crazy, especially as someone with a musical pedigree. But I just. Yeah, I, you I, would think. Yeah. For me, Dagan, music has become less and less and less important to video games. That is really interesting. I did not know you felt this way. I have to say, for me, 
now that I'm really thinking it through, not listening to the soundtrack is almost like for me, like a big, not listening to the game as well as playing it, like fully, not fully immersing yourself in a game is almost as bad for me as like a cardinal sin of like renaming a character in a classic Final Fantasy game. Like, I am not going to rename Cecil. That's fucking Cecil. That's Rosa. That's, you know, right. that's Edge. That's so, not Dagon. That, you know, so it's like, I, I will. I hate when people do that. I will not rename a cat. Yeah, that is really interesting. I have to. I have to get the whole experience. Now, I might be like sort of a balance between you and Chris, because what you're saying is Chris just won't play it. You're saying you're you're going to get maximum enjoyment out of a mediocre game by at least listening to what you want to while you play it. Right. But right. Chris exactly. I'm play. not going to like Bloodstain's a great example. I'm I'm grinding in Bloodstain for items to to get my platinum trophy. Yeah. I'm not going to like I'm going in and out of screens, in and out of screens, like trying to re, like, reproduce. Anime. I'm not listening to this. You know, like this is like, hey, how is the music in that game? It's good. OK, but I don't want to make it seem like I start a game off and I'm original and I'm initially like, all right, mute. And then I start the game up like I, you have to get a feel for it. Yeah. You know, and when, and when a game like The Last of Us 2 comes out or something, I'm going to play that with yeah. sound on, obviously. Right. Of course. It, but I play a lot of old games. I play a lot of 2D games. I play a lot of games that really don't require that have no voice acting that really don't require. Yeah sound and and so yeah I'm, I'm i'm unabashed about that because to me i'm like that's probably the least important thing about the game unless hmm. unless yeah it's intimately played into what makes the game special sure you know so again i use sound shapes as a good example that game is all about making music so of mm. course you're going to need to hear it but i think music is and soundtrack has become so much less important to games than they were back in the day i i really i know that some people think this is crazy but to me and I think to a lot of people, and maybe even to you, yeah. all of the iconic game music is from like 20 years ago or more. Mm. I mean, really think about that. That's a really good point. Even if you think about like the Breath of the Wild soundtrack, a lot it of that, reprieves a lot of the classic Zelda Exactly. Tracks. It has some sort of, exactly. Even if it's in the bridge or something, it, it has something that is a touchstone to the past. I'm trying to think of like an iconic sa- video game soundtrack from like the last 10 years. Like there are a few. The Last of Us has an iconic soundtrack, okay, and, and there so there are games that. that exist that people. But even with that, I'm like, I don't even know what The Last of Us music is. Like ah. except for except for the except for the intro, like the the very famous guitar piece. That's okay. like the, the the kind of theme. Yeah, I'm like, I don't I don't know if I. I mean, you could literally play five songs for me and say one of those songs is from The Last of Us. I'd be like, I have no idea. Oh, so wow, that's re- that's a really interesting point. I wonder how much of it for you because you are not only are you a musician, but you're a talented musician, and you have a very critical ear. So I would think if you said that, that that would play into it for you. Like you're just very critical of the audio of the soundtrack as something's not good. You know, something's less likely to appeal to you because you're more critical. You know more, you know. Right. I, I think scoring a game takes a lot of talent. I know some composers that do really good work, but it's just, yeah, it's not an important component of the of, the, of play to me. That's typically. so interesting. The swelling of, of music and stuff that really can affect the scene. Sure. But. When you play a game for this is what we were talking about earlier. When you play a game for a hundred hours, mm-hmm. it's like enough already. Please, enough already. I can't <laughs> the same five songs or the same ten NPCs, or whatever the case might be. It, and I think it all plays into that as well. But that's always. I mean, I've been very open about that for many years. Maybe that, they need to start doing. You know, I, this is a very controversial thing to say, and I, I, I'm speaking completely out of turn because I really don't know, and I haven't worked on very many video games. But I wonder how much of the music in a video game is treated as an afterthought during development. And that's why it's one of those less appealing aspects for a lot of people. I'm not saying that it is. I'm not, I, I, I work in TV. I work on, you know, I work on cartoons and stuff like that. And soundtrack and audio is a, an important component in what we do. It's a, it's a main thing. It's huge. 
voice acting and music. Right. But you're but I, I that's that, of course, is true. But you're that's an experience in which you watch you're and watching. absorb. Yeah. So if, if you if you're interacting with that experience, would you would you want to walk up to the NPC and hear him say the same thing five times? Or would you rather just have it fucking muted? Right. Exactly. I, I, these are the kinds of questions you have to ask. And I actually think that game enthusiasts. Yeah often conflate the, their feelings about games with the way a lot of people feel about games. I, I, it doesn't surprise me that a, ga- that a game enthusiast would have a vinyl Last of Us soundtrack. Of course they would, but I, I would... The Last of Us was played by over 10 million people. How many of those people really cared about the music? Is that really the iconic thing in The no, Last of Us? No, it's not that. even remotely the, the most iconic thing in The Last of Us. You never hear about the music. So, and never. again, there's a guy that... I, I can't remember his name, a great guitarist that's doing this, that that's reprising... I think that song in some way for Last of Us 2 when he played it at E3 last year. And it's cool. It's cool. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not insulting it, you yeah. know? Yeah. I'm just saying like in an interactive experience that you want to play at your own pace, there are certain things that I, I was complaining about this in Far Cry New Dawn. I'm a huge Far Cry fan, huge Far Cry fan. I love that series. And when you pause the game, it plays music. Okay. And I'm like, what? And you can't even shut it off like little design philosophies like oh. that. So what did Colin do? He just shut all of the sound you off muted. in the game. You know, so that when I, I could pause the game and I have fucking rock music playing while I'm like on a phone meeting or something like that. Wow, whatever's going on. They wouldn't make it just an option. Imagine, dude, aren't they the weirdest? Well, you don't play enough new games, I don't think. But you as we get you more into some of these new games. Yeah, there are some weird design philosophies where you're like, how did you make a game so good? Yeah. And then fuck that up. That little thing. God of War is always the example I use, the new God of War. What yeah. an immaculate game. Yeah. Terrible map, terrible UI, terrible quick travel system. What? You did all <laughs> of the hard things right. Right. This is like the last 1% of that's the game. Odd. That's and, odd. And it's terrible. What do you make? What do you chalk that up to? I have no idea. Style, I think. I think a lot of people want to be stylistic and cute. Yeah. This is my whole thing. I, I've said this before. No shooter feels better than Call of Duty. No shooter. Okay. Now, this is a contentious thing. Some people don't agree with that. In my opinion, Call of Duty has the perfect shooting. If I was making a shooter, I would straight up copy Call of Duty's control scheme. Okay. It's the same thing with these other adult any design. Any Call of Duty? Like they're well, all I mean, not anyone, but maybe the ones in the last 10 years one. or so. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, from Modern Warfare Up, I would say. Okay. So, to me, I'm like, well, that's so good that why would you do it any other way than that? And it's a similar thing where it's like, well... You shouldn't have sound on your music, on your fucking pause screen, because that doesn't make any sense. That's so weird. You should have a quick travel system that doesn't take minutes to use because it's called quick travel. You should have a map that is coherent. Right. And if you want to reinvent the wheel for all these things, I guess you can do that. But there's a bunch of games. It's like in Seinfeld. We already have it, George. Right. We, like we, we know how to do this already. We know this. So, yeah. Very interesting, Carl. Very interesting yeah. conversation. I yeah, like I, I enjoyed it. I enjoy I like it. it. I like it, my friend. This how do you want to? How do you want to wrap things up today? You know what? I, I just have to say, I had one thought about you know again, hearkening back to Capcom and the success of this game and how good it is. You know, this appeals to me, and I almost have to just say this as something that I can relate to. When something this good comes out and takes this much time to make, and of course they had kind of announced it in what 2015 and then went dark basically for like three years. Yeah, right? never yeah. talked about it at all. So. There was basically, I'm, I'm imagining this was the truth as it often is in creative endeavor, endeavors, whether it be a video game or a, an album that's coming out or a TV show or a series or a film. There is a boardroom full of executives, the money people, the bean counters that are tapping their fingers on the desk waiting for this thing to be done. On the other end of the table, the creative people saying, just trust us and wait. This is going to be worth the wait. It's going to cost more money but it's going to be successful. And 
those are the people at Capcom, those creatives that made this game as special as it is. And I always think of that because I could really relate to that from, you know, what I do for a living and everything like that. And my creative endeavors with that, with animation and everything, that, that means a lot because that takes a lot of courage because sometimes, and sometimes you're even putting your job on the line to, to kind of pursue your passion and to make something good. And, um, it's really cool to see when that thing is a success because now they're really empowered and it's not an, I told you so thing. It kind of is, you know, like kind of a, you know, you get a leg up over the executives that were kind of the naysayers, but it's really cool to me. It always kind of warms my heart a little bit, not to be sappy that you see something done this special and this well, there was no reason for this game. They did not have to make this game this good. And they really, really made it special and I really enjoyed it. And it's sort of propelling me into, you know, this is one of the games now that I've been playing and also hearkening back to a lot of the things we, we play on PS3 and even going back to PS2, things that I missed that I talk about on the show a lot. This is kind of propelling me into the kind of sphere of contemporary gaming. And it's so cool because if this game was a less positive experience, I might be more like, you know, leaning on the Turbo Graphics or the Genesis or the NES like I do. You know, because I'm really into retro gaming. So that's been, it's really special for me. I'm really um, grateful that we get the opportunity to do these, you know, these games and these talks because, yeah, because modern gaming, it's so, it's so fun. It's so different than retro gaming. It's, you were saying it earlier, it just brings a whole different set of tools to the table. You know, I just love how, how creative and innovative it is when modern gaming is good. It's a matter of keeping things, I think, elegant and, streamlined in a way that doesn't make things too complicated. We've long since strayed from the two-button format of the NES, and this has injected options into games. And showing restraint, I think, is one of the things that I think developers need to do the most. And I, I think, of anything, Resident Evil 2 showed a lot of restraint because they could have done a lot more to make it a lot crazier. They could have made it bigger. They could have given you another campaign and all this kind of shit, but they really just were true to it. And I agree with you. I, I suspect the bean counters at Capcom were not happy that the game took so long. They were not happy when the original Resident Evil 2 took so long. And right. what was and what was the uh, the the commonality there? Resident Evil 2 was the best. Uh, actually, I wrote this down. I don't know if this is still true, but I saw this that Resident Evil 2 on PS1 yeah. is the best-selling Capcom game per skew. So what they're basically claiming Yeah, so what they're basically claiming is that Resident Evil 2 on PS1 okay. is the best-selling single skew Capcom game ever. That is very interesting. In other words, it's not the best-selling... Street Fighter 2 and, and Monster Hunter World is the best-selling Capcom game now, actually. Oh, wow. But th- that was sold over Xbox One, PS4, and PC. Okay. What they're saying is on PS1, Resident Evil 2 sold more copies on than that any other iteration of any other game Capcom's ever made. That is really interesting, especially if you think about their their whole body of work. But it also... I don't think I, I knew anyone with a PS1 that didn't own that game. Yeah, no, I was. I, I, I remember. It. I remember very clearly it being a heavily anticipated game. Now I was in JRPG weeb mode, like you wouldn't even believe at that time. So Resident Evil Two is one of those games that I would have to play, and I did at someone else's house or rent or whatever. Yeah, but, that was that era. Oh my god, I was like, for me, I was like in weeb central on <laughs> PS One. We didn't even call ourselves weebs at that time. So no, that wasn't a thing. Yet. No, that wasn't a thing. It, it, it was way, by the way, way more unaccepted than it is now as well oh to be playing gosh. that shit. I, I don't think I, I didn't score many cool points. Uh, with the uh, kids at school. But yeah, so I think Resident Evil 2 is is a nice blueprint for future remakes. And again, going back to the point I made earlier, getting the remake right because it's not going to be happening again 
Resident Evil 2 is not getting me remade again. It's over. I love that point. I think that's really a great point. I love it. Yeah. So, I mean, the only thing you could think of is if something new came out today, like, let's say Red Dead Redemption, right? You could remake that game in 30 years, probably, with the technology that we're going to have then. But yeah, for existing IPs and existing specifically, you know, specific IP iterations, numbers, number two, number three, whatever it is. Yeah, that's it. This is going to be it. I love that. I, I just love that. And I hope that also kind of propels. We talk about this a lot lately with films and especially all the Disney re- live action remakes of the classic animated films like Lion King. And now they're working on Mulan and Aladdin and all that kind of stuff. They all look Little terrible. They all look terrible, by the way. You know, I hope this also propels a sentiment of creating new stuff. Me too. You know, and now we have the Netflixes, we have the Apples, we have the Amazons and they're creating new things. And I'm grateful for those entities. But yeah, in in gaming, I hope that sort of propels new things to come out and for people to take risks on new stuff because, yeah, we can't rely on the old IPs forever. No, you know what I mean? And you have to also remember, and you know this as well as anyone as a creative, is that uh, developers don't want to make these games. They don't want to make old games. Like, this is a big thing and and, and a pretty open secret that if you're promised a, a spot on Resident Evil 2 remake team as a new hire, that's probably pretty exciting for you. But if after that... They're like, now you're going to remake Nemesis. Right. They're like, are you fucking kidding me? Like they want to work on something new. And so the other thing about remakes is that these teams are eventually, these publishers are eventually going to have a hard time finding people to make them because these guys, it's easier than ever to put out your own game and make your own game. You don't really need to be at a big publisher anymore. So I think the high quality of this game also spoke to the, like, we're going to do it right. We got to do it right. And uh, hopefully this will earn us a way onto the Resident Evil 8 team or whatever. You know, right. Right. (laughs) I think that that was probably... The notion there as well. I wouldn't want to. I'm a writer, so I don't have any practical anything to do with games, really. But if someone was like, uh, can you rewrite, you know, whatever Lord of the Rings? I'm like, what? <laughs> I don't want to do that. Why would I ever want to do that? That's also a very good point. You know, so. yeah, creative people want to create things. You know, they don't want to, you know, co- as far as like being cogs in the production wheel. And I don't say that in a negative way. I am one, you know, animators compositors, background artists, storyboard artists, you know, sound people, voiceover artists, all that. They, they're happy to work. You know what I mean? But creatives want to create new stuff. That's the excitement. So hopefully we have a nice balance of both over the next, you know, decade. I think we will. I think that this is the kind, these are the kinds of games that are necessary for a Capcom to experiment on other things. Yeah, that's a great Without... Point. With with just barely making money on games, then you're just barely going to get anything new. <laughs> and so, you know, we're they're in a good they're in a good position, and we are seeing a new Capcom for sure. The last I love few years it. makes me proud. Uh, Dig, should we wrap up with uh, quick fire questions? Yeah. Now, now I have to. Re- I, at some point during our conversation, far in, I forgot about our opening segment. Oh, that's right. But what we'll do is yeah. we'll save it for the next episode. Okay. We so we missed one, but that's okay. Or we we, we could do it twice. Whatever we're going to do. So yeah. So we're going to finish with. The closing segment. Now that we're officially, are we officially in wave nine? We are. Yeah, we're moving into. We're it into now. wave nine now, because we were gonna, as Colin said, we were gonna record this one remotely, but we're doing it in person here in Philly. This one's gonna be hot out of the oven for you guys. I, I know. Mean, it's going up mere what hours? Yeah, it'll be hours. Mere after hours we after we f- fresh out of the oven, fresh indeed, baked. Indeed. You smell that fresh baked chocolate chip cookie? It's smell? great. Yeah, it smells great. It's wonderful. All right, so lightning round. This is lightning round versus mode. Me and Colin, I already answered the questions and then Colin's going to answer them and then we'll compare our answers to see how close we got to each other. Resident Evil 2 Remake 
we do what is it called we do we do it we do this what is it we, we do it i think we, we do, do it we do it we yeah, do it we do it all right Kyle. original or remake remake all right claire or leon claire i hear you on that one mr x or nemesis mr x mm-hmm. sherry or newt who i th- i really still believe sherry is sherry large largely based on resident evil or silent hill Resident Evil. I I, I like Silent Hill, but it's it's been a too. long time since there's been a good Silent Hill game. A How very many long are time. there now? There were three mainline ones, I think, and there was a few spinoffs like Book of Memories and stuff. Okay, yeah, I have to go Resident Evil. I mean, the last isn't Silent Hill two considered like the last good Silent Hill game? Yeah, it's I like think twenty so. years old. I think it is. Yeah, it so is. I think it literally time. is. 20 might be years might old. be time to move on. <laughs> <laughs> Resident Evil. Now we're going Capcom IP. Resident Evil or Street Fighter. Street Fighter. Mm-hmm. Zombie or liquor. Liquor, just because you can get a little sexual, maybe. I thought you might go there. Yeah, thank I you. I you might go there. Shotgun or machine gun? Shotgun. I'm a fan of the minigun at the end of the game. Yeah, that's a, that's oh, a good one. Dude, it's so good. What did you say? Shotgun? Shotgun, yeah. You're going shotgun. Definitely. Zombie... Oh, now, think about this okay. for a second. Zombie apocalypse or alien invasion? Oh, I don't have to think too much about that. Alien invasion. You going alien invasion on this? Definitely. All right. I would love to experience an alien invasion more than you a really zombie would? apocalypse. Oh, definitely. I mean, it would be pretty fascinating. It would be fucking awesome. As long as we could survive. Right, exactly. It'd be, it would be amazing. <laughs> Claire or Jill Valentine? Hmm. Claire. I'm going Claire on that one, too. Yeah. Resident Evil 3 remake. This is a bonus question. Okay. Resident Evil 3 remake, yay or nay? Yay. You're going yay on Definitely. This. I don't think we did any different ones. I think we got 100% on this. Great minds. No, huh? wait. I went Newt. Oh, I okay. went Newt. Nah, all right. So that's the one. Well, Nine hey, out of 10? Nine out of 10. That's good. That's bad, good enough for me. That's good. It's way better than the gambling we've been doing on the riverboat here. <laughs> on the digital Pressure riverboat. Pressure luck. Press your luck. Do you feel lucky, punk? Did you see that they brought Press Your Luck back? No. It's did like they? an ABC primetime thing now. Really? Yeah. No whammies. Are there little animations of the whammy? Yeah. Oh, I got to see this. Yeah. I wonder who's doing it. I don't know. Huh. That's the third time I think they brought it back because I'm a huge Press oh, Your Luck fan. Oh, there's been. They've brought this back several times. Yeah. On Game Show Network, they brought it back like 10 or 15 years ago. Oh, Game Show Network had its own. It had like original programming for a little oh, while. I did not know that. Because they had another game called like that was like a, a Scrabble like game that was really good. I forget. Oh. It was actually hosted by Chuck Woolery who oh, blocked me on Twitter. Oh, I saw that. I, I saw can't. It. I can't get over it. It's. it's I didn't do it. I think I'm on a block list and I think he uses block lists or yeah. whatever. So that's heartbreaking. I don't understand it. Now, I looked into it a little bit last time you were talking about it on Twitter. Colin, obviously everybody knows, fairly conservative guy. Chuck Woolery, known conservative. Yeah, it's weird. W- what is the problem? Maybe he just doesn't like my... Because initially I'm thinking about, all right, Chuck Woolery, look at him. He's probably some Hollywood, you know, oranged, sun, sun leathered in the sun. Right, right, right. Liberal type. No. No, he's a conservative. Just the opposite. He's like a radio host, I think, right? Yeah, he does a podcast. Or a podcast. Yeah, I think it's it's peculiar because there are a few people that have blocked me where I'm like famous people where I'm like, I don't, they I've never must... interacted with you. Who's the actor that always that blocks everyone? The guy from uh, Say Anything? What's his name? Oh, does he? Yeah. John, uh, not John, the guy from. Um... Well, I can't think of his name. Oh, Jesus, that's going to bother me now. But he blocks everyone too. Who has, his sister is Joan. Right? Is that oh, Cusack. John Cusack. 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 Yeah. yeah. Uh, he blocked me on Twitter. But he, but he blocks... Every, apparently, he blocks Why? everyone. Why? I don't know. He but has, when it's like when famous people are like blocking irrelevant. me, 
I'm like, I don't know what's going on here. That's really. But Chuck Woolery is the one where I just can't get over it. And where people have actually tweeted at him and be like, unblock, you know, unblock. Yeah. It's like, what dude, liberate me from this prison. I have a feeling hit the button on on accident. Now you have a, you're a, you have enough fame. You're, you have, you have your fame. You have a lot of followers, especially on Twitter. I could, you know, you, you might be somebody he's come, you've come up in a famous person's feed. It's happened before you have famous followers and stuff like that. I have a feeling hit the button by accident. What else would it be? Uh, it's a, I think it's a block list, like where they download these lists of thousands and thousands of people, you know, that are like apparently the unsavory people on Twitter. So that's, block them all that's just weird. To yeah, me. I, I totally I totally agree with that. You. you wouldn't even even being famous, even having you and you know about this. I mean, even being famous and having your own, you know, having a big following and a huge following and everything like that. Why wouldn't you want autonomy over your own follows? Yeah, it's it's it's, it's a little that's strange. Yeah, I don't use those lists. In fact, whenever I recently, whenever I encounter someone that I blocked, I unblock them recently like the last few months oh. where i'm like i don't know why this person's even blocked anymore okay. i mean i've been using twitter for 10 years so who the hell even knows what's going on anymore <laughs> now when you unblock somebody does it notify them no i don't think so okay sometimes i there's a little trick you can do too when people are mean to me but that, that's not enough to block and they, they follow me yeah block them and then unblock them and that unfollows like so they don't follow you anymore and then they just like oh it, because yeah oh that's a great that's a great trick because it, it'll t- it'll notify the block but not the unblock Right. right. Well, well. in other words, they won't even notice that they're not following you anymore. It's just a punitive little thing to do. Oh, you know, they can refollow you. Right, right, right. But then they would have to be checking into it, which people do. The unfollowing thing drives me out of my mind. Oh, dude. I'm, I mean, I lose. I'm so I have such a schizophrenic Twitter account. I lose. I mean, I'm, I've been in losing followers for a long time. That's so strange to me. You know, I think I lost like a thousand over the last month. I don't really care because. I think the most I ever lost was when I was like a real vehement supporter of Mitt Romney. I think yeah. I lost like thousands and thousands of followers at that time. Yeah. But I'm like, I don't really care. Like I, I the number is irrelevant to me. First of all, most of the people that are following me are probably not even active Twitter accounts, which is true for anybody. Yeah. And that's probably very true. And uh, if you want to unfollow me because I tweet about whatever, then just unfollow me. I don't care. I don't even it know if it's that, dude. I think a lot of people expect followbacks. I, I really do. I mean, I saw I've witnessed, I've witnessed this on Instagram for much longer than Twitter because I've been on Instagram. I've only been on Twitter for about a year and a half, but I've been on Instagram for about three years now. And people really follow you expecting you to follow them back. And it's not that I don't want to follow people back. It's just about like, if you follow me on Twitter, it's probably because I make you laugh or I said something cute or funny or clever. That's all I'm trying to do on Twitter. That's my whole motif. That's my whole that's my modus operandi. That's that's all I'm trying to do. If you follow me, great, but I, I, I'm not going to follow everybody back that follows me just because I don't ch- I don't use Twitter that way. Yeah, no, you have it ruins you your own I mean? feed. I, I always get a kick out of when someone follows me and they have, you know, it's like, I don't know if you know this, but if you if you're a verified user, you have like a third vertical in here. I'll show you. Yeah, t- show me. So it. you you have I'm pulling up my phone for day now for people that don't. You know, what do you mean a third user? So if you here, this is my notifications, but notice on the left side or no, on the right side, it says verified, which you don't have. Right. No, no, no. And no. if you click on that, it's all only your interactions with verified users. Oh, and so verified people follow me and you can see that. Oh. But then often when I click on them, they have like six, they're following like 60,000 people or something oh, like that. Shit. And I'm like, are you kidding me? So it's like a VIP section. Yeah. Yeah. Basically. Basically. You and so see. and I only bring that up because like I always see these accounts that are doing exactly what you say that have like one hundred and twenty five thousand followers, but like are following like sixty five thousand people. And that's, that's when insane. you know you're just not using Twitter properly and you have no one interacting with you. Right. I follow three hundred people, I think, on Twitter. That's about as and I, I unfollow people constantly for your following. That's a huge 
yeah, a huge difference between the amount of people that follow you and that. And again, like I'm, I don't say it in a mean spirited way. Like there's probably a lot of people that I would follow. It's just that I don't use Twitter. I don't have the time to use Twitter that way. Like I'm not looking at millions and millions, thousands and thousands of Twitter people. Like I go on for to interact with people after I say something, in other words, you know what I mean? I don't have time to go through. Like I literally check like five Twitter feeds, you know, specifically. And four of them are Mark Hamill. <laughs> How many times has he liked you down? I know you're keeping a running tally. I feel like I'm getting a little gypped on stuff. I feel like Mark Hamill needs to get the likes up a little bit. I, some of these things are pretty clever, I have to say. Some of my responses are fucking clever as shit. I'm, I'm, I'm going to tap myself on the back a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah, But, I mean, he probably has so many interactions that yeah. he doesn't see a lot. And but I think it's about a dozen. That's pretty good. Not you bad. know exactly how many it is. So it's don't 12. Say, it's yeah, 12. 12. So, so <laughs> that's why being verified is so interesting on Twitter because he would see me tweeting at him. You would see it for sure. If oh, I so you would go to, you would rise to the top of the uh, list. The verified list. Oh. Yeah. Which is why I always tweet at politicians because I know they see it. And that's, oh, and that's yeah. why, so that's why I'm always busting balls on I Twitter. I see you doing that. Oh, well, usually it's to be funny. Like sure. I'm, I'm asking them things that they obviously don't know the answers to, <laughs> but I know that they all see it. So that's why, or at least their people see it. It's not like these things are going into a bet. Like that, they're going into the verified list and they're seeing the verified list of people that tweeted at them and they're they seeing my to, shit. They have to see it. I just want an answer from someone. <laughs> no one's yet answered me about my video game tweets. Uh, Dagan, it's time to wrap up. We've gone over two hours on Resident Evil 2. I believe it. It is fitting. Uh, we're going to send this over to Dustin now so he can get it edited and we're going to get it right up. Thank you for your patience on the lateness. We just ran out of episodes. So. Oh. Uh, oh. <laughs> so. Uh, <laughs> So, but obviously we'll never miss a weekend. Uh, we appreciate your patience as we're, you know, we'll be probably about 12 hours late today or so. Maybe, maybe eight hours. Is it that late? Yeah. We're slacking. Well, we ran out of episodes. You know what? what are we gonna do? You know what? You could have just gotten fucking nothing. So you're going to, so you're going to, you're going to enjoy it. All right. Quality over quantity. No, definitely. Definitely. That's true. Uh, Dagan, appreciate you. Appreciate Thank you, my friend. Thank you all out there for your love and kindness and support. Remember, support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash Collins Last Stand for early ad-free access to every episode, your ability to submit questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, and ideas. By the way, we for the next nine episodes we're going to do, I have, God, this is 20 pages of comments, I, I think. I know you do. Look at that, man. You have so, a book over there. I was very clear with this wave that we are really getting to the critical mass now where people's questions are not going to get used. Like we, we remember when, when oh, right. Remember when knockback was new, we would use everything, everything for each episode. Then in the mid waves, we would use some of them, but we would read names out that had similar things. And now we've gotten to the point where that's impossible. Mm. Like there's just so much feedback because the show is growing every single month. We appreciate you guys. So we appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you're freeloaders, we appreciate you anyway. Let us oh, know, uh, you know, go, go over there and let your friends know about the show and leave us nice reviews on iTunes, etc. Can't do it without you. We'll see you next time for Wave 9 proper. We're very excited. All right, bye. Knockback is a product of and a registered trademark of Collins Last Stand LLC and is recorded in Santa Monica, California and the Philadelphia suburbs of Pennsylvania, USA. The show is produced by me, Colin Moriarty, and was conceived of by myself and Dagan Moriarty, who is also my co-host. You can find me on Twitter at NoTaxation and on Instagram at CLS Moriarty. Dagan is on Twitter at Dagan1973 and on Instagram at DaganLikesToDraw. Knockback is edited by Dustin Furman.
Any snail mail can be sent to our P.O. Box, P.O. Box 1233, Santa Monica, California, 90406. As you know, all things Collins Last Stand, including Knockback, are fan-funded on Patreon at patreon.com slash Stand. The following names are at the producer level or higher on Patreon, and we are eternally grateful for your kindness, generosity, and fandom. Carlos Algaret, Morgan Ashley, Taylor Barkley, Sean Battershall, Martin Beck, Eric Bishop, Mark Boggio, Eli Bosfort, Barrett Boswell, Spencer Brand, Miguel Brewer, Lennon Brixie, Jimmy Brown, Jason Budnick, Josh Bushing, Austin Bullock, Andrew Burkhart, Dylan Burns, Chris Buston, Alex Cabrera, Tom Cargill, Patrick Carper, William O'Carroll, Brian Chan, Sean Chandler, David Chestnut, Simon Conception Jr., Brad Cooley, Geo Corsi, Nick Cummings, Daniel D'Amour, Colin Davenport, Mitchell Durkash, Zachary Douglas, Knight Draft, David Ellis, Martha Emery, Liam Fagan, Joe Finelli, Eric Finkenbeiner, Fodios Frangos, Michael Gallier, Chris Galvin, Connor Gashian, Alex Gates, Michael Gates, Salem Ghanem Al Ghanem, Daniel Glassford, Tyler Goodwin, Josh Gravelick, Miranda Grubba, Tyler Harris, Kyle Hay. Wyatt Henry, Asa Haas, Azan Isa Al Ricey, Josh Yeager, John Jameson, Jimmy Jolicure, Joshua Jonathan, Greg Julius, Anton Kay, Jeremy Key, Anti Kinnanen, James Kinsler III, Ryan R. Kittredge, Jackson Lastiqua, Joe Lawson, Don Q. Lee, Patrick Leslie, Dustin Lewis, Keith A. Lewis, Chad Lewis, Lou and Ray Loper, Colin Love, Josh M., Ryan T. Mandel, Peter Mark, Michael Martinez, Sean Mason, Zachariah McAdoo, John McCarthy, Josh McKinney, Joe McPartland, Andrew Mendoza, Christopher Midling, Alex Moans, Chris Moore, Betty Ann Moriarty, Ryan Murdoch, Adam Nick, Donnie Nolan, George A. Nunez, Grayson Orr, Brian Ott, Jorge Palomino, Daniel Parsons, Marius S. Peterson, Gerald Pennington, Enrique Perez, James Perone, Jason Pettit, Jeff Pollard, Louis Powell, Lawrence F. Prokop, Andrew Ramos, Ryan Reeves, Michael Renner, Peter Reynolds, Shane Rayum, Jonathan Rice, Mark Richardson, Toby D. Riemenschneider, Austin Riley, Petro Rose, A.G. Rowe, Josh Salinas, Jose Salinas, John Scholes, Michael Shanholtz, Toby Schutman, Glendon Cole Simper, Joshua Smallwood, Daniel Strycharsk, Ahmad Tamar, Will Thelander, Ben Thompson, Carl Tolman, Alan Tremblay, Jake Jacob Turnbaugh, Raymond Vargas, Michael Vecchio, Oakley Waldron, Justin Wagaman, Connor Walton, Isaac Wastman, Damon Weathers, Mike Wayant, Corey Wyatt, Tony Zaniga, Hugo's Desk, Organic Produce, Casual Misfits Gaming, Supershot ST, Homeworld Hub, Throw7, Nick C, Infinite, Mad Mock Media, Fabian, Mubarak, Richter86, Andrew, Ian, Chris, Dav9834, Donk2015, and Gavin.